0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: show with good news actually amazing news fantastic news and it's about Yemen so get ready to party um Ro Khanna we should be singing for he's a jolly good fellow for he's a jolly good fellow to Ro Khanna right now um so I'm going to lead with that news I already uh Kind of let everybody know and spoil it a little bit there. Um, Ben Shapiro is in today's show. I will be going after Ben Shapiro. He responded to Ilhan Omar's tweet. And uh, it is just a fucking heaping pile of dumb. (laughs) So I hesitated to cover this, but I'm going to cover it. Um, It was one of those things where... He just throws so much shit against the wall that you're like, I don't know if I have the will to undertake deconstructing all of it. But luckily for all of you, I decided I am going to do that. So Ben Shapiro goes after Ilhan Omar, and it's a mess to say the least. Um, Then we have Ilhan Omar redeems herself from her unnecessary apology by taking on prominent neocon Elliot Abrams, and that is quite a video. I'll play that for you. And I got a lot on uh, Howard Schitts today. Howard Schitts did a town hall a few nights ago, and um, it's just as bad as you would expect it to be.
2: <laughs>
1: so don't go anywhere. Today's show is, um, is substance-packed. Later on, I have a great answer to the question,
3: how are you going to pay for it?
1: The question always thrown at left wingers, never thrown at right wingers when their agenda includes endless war and uh, corporate welfare. But we have a direct and specific answer to the annoying gaslighting question of how are you going to pay for it? How are you going to pay for all these basic things that other developed nations have? How are you going to pay for it? Oh, How are you going to pay for it? I understand. How are you going to pay for it? Well, bitch, listen up. We'll explain it. God damn it. All right, so without further ado, let's get started. And like I said, we'll do that with Yemen. And uh, our boy came through. Our boy came through. So we had an absolutely gigantic victory yesterday. NBC News reported on this. Here's what they say. The House on Wednesday passed a measure aimed at withdrawing all U.S. military support for the Saudi Arabia-backed war in Yemen, the latest in a series of rebukes by Congress to President Donald Trump's foreign policy. The Democratic-led House advanced the bill 248 to 177 uh, as its first major vote on foreign policy, making it a priority even as the administration resists congressional involvement in the conflict. Last year, with Republicans in the majority, The House refused to take up the measure in order to keep the president's hands from being tied on a key foreign policy area. Because a similar bill has passed the Senate before and is likely to pass again, it could be the first veto of Trump's presidency. The resolution, authored by Representative Ro Khanna, has strong support from both sides of the aisle. It would invoke the War Powers Resolution, inserting congressional oversight into the conflict in Yemen. Uh, effectively ending U.S. involvement and military assistance to the civil war there between the Yemen government and the Iran-backed Houthi rebels. So, uh, listen, everybody should be sending love, support, gratitude, and congratulations to Rokana, Khanna, because he worked his ass off to get this done. And I'm not exaggerating even a tiny bit. When I say that as, as a direct result of Rokana's actions, countless lives are going to be saved, because even though mainstream media outlets, um, you know, tiptoe around it, the reality is the United States of America was backing a genocide being carried out by one of our top allies. So the details of what's happening in Yemen are just almost unfathomable. That's how bad it is. I mean, it is really just terrible. So you have um, the Saudi government is blocking ports. And as a direct result of blocking ports, food and medicine is not getting in. So you have millions of people in Yemen starving. You have people starving. You have a cholera epidemic. Uh, It's 100% treatable, but they're not allowing in the medicine to treat it. So young, emanciated children, we've seen pictures coming out of there of young, emanciated children. And I haven't even brought up yet the bomb fest that has been occurring for years. Thousands of innocent people have been killed. And we're talking about deliberate attacks on mosques, on uh, hospitals, on schools. So make no mistake about it, it's a genocide, it's being done on purpose. It's trying to make the Yemeni people submit, because there was a a Sunni government that was ousted, then you had the Shia Houthi rebels take over, and Saudi Arabia, of course, had an alliance with the previous Sunni government. They want another Sunni government in there, and uh, the Houthi rebels are not giving up control So basically, the response from the Saudi government has been siege warfare. Like, let's just kill as many people and as many civilians as possible, and then that will uh, make them submit. And this entire time, mind you, Saudi Arabia is sitting on the UN human rights panel. I wish I was joking. I wish I was joking. But they are, and we, of course, are um, arming Saudi Arabia endlessly, so, And Donald Trump has made a big 180 since he was on the campaign trail, and since before he was on the campaign trail, when he used to say, oh, Saudi Arabia, they're responsible for 9-11, really terrible, terrible government. Um, and he used to understand that that was the, the, the hotbed of the ideology of al-Qaeda, that yeah. you're talking about a fundamentalist, Sunni, Salafist government, and of course they funded radical madrasas around the world, and it really is... It actually is the number one state sponsor of terror, Um, and Trump used to talk about that now that he's president, and now that you have Saudi Arabia literally uh, giving Trump hundreds of thousands of dollars laundered through his hotel in D.C., which he shouldn't even have the right to have as he's president because that's a violation of the Emoluments Clause. Basically, he's being bought off by the Saudi government, and so he's delivering, and he's giving them billions and billions and billions of dollars of weapons as they're massacring innocent people. And then, of course, we have the nerve to turn around and pretend like, oh, we care about innocent Venezuelans. That's why we have to go in to protect human rights. No, as Noam Chomsky says, you're responsible for what you do. You're responsible for what you do. So what have we done? armed one of the most brutal governments on the planet and aided them as they committed genocide, hey, maybe we should stop that. Just a radical idea. Maybe we should stop that. And maybe all the fucking crocodile tears about, oh, Sirius Bashar al-Assad is a terrible guy. Oh, Maduro, oh, a terrible guy. Maybe all that comes across as uh, horseshit because of our record. So you want to actually care about human rights? Stop. Uh, funding, arming, propping up the Saudi government, stop doing that with 73% of the world's dictatorships, and then maybe well, people will take you more seriously when you pretend to care about human rights. Just a thought. Well, Ro Khanna has been a leader on this front. He's been fighting over a year. He's been working on trying to ga- it, gather support, and basically what ended up happening, and w- we've seen it unfold, is Bernie in the Senate, Ro Khanna in the House, working to get people, yes, on the left, but also on the right because... There's an argument to be made from a right-wing perspective, too. Now, there, uh, there's this new rise of paleocons among the, the Republican base. Paleocons is the old school, like, Pat Buchanan mindset, where um, despite all their flaws on issues of foreign policy, they think, yeah, I don't know why we should be nation builders. We should probably focus on, on uh, our own country. Um, that's one strain of anti-intervention thought on the right. Another one is... Uh, libertarians typically are anti-intervention, and we've seen that in the Senate with Rand Paul, for example, even Mike Lee, who on many other issues is horrendous. But on this issue, he says, hey, very simply, uh, I don't know why we should be aiding like a, just a, a, a radical, theocratic government, and I also don't know why uh, Congress has just given its power away to this uh, this insanely authoritarian executive branch under the Constitution— Congress has to declare war. But what we've been doing recently is, oh, oh this is fucking, the executive branch sends troops wherever the fuck they want on a whim, and Congress just sits idly by. So it, it honestly is a scandal that we're bombing eight different countries, because that's what we're doing. We're bombing eight different countries right now, never mind the shadow war that we're doing in uh, with all our drone bases in Africa, which is a much longer story and a much longer conversation for a different day. But that's all unconstitutional. And what they do is they lie, and they say, oh, it's okay because we're just adding this on to the authorization for use of military force that we got under the the Bush administration. So in other words, their argument is the war on terror authorization for use of military force now includes eight different countries, which makes no sense, and that's utterly made up. And on top of that, they say, oh, because we passed that authorization for use of military force to go after al-Qaeda, that also means we get to go after the—or aid going after the Houthi rebels— in Yemen. The Houthi rebels, not saying they're good people, they're fighting al-Qaeda. So when we say we're going to use this authorization for use of military force, which was to go against al-Qaeda, we're going to now use that to go against the people who are fighting al-Qaeda, that makes no sense. And that's a legal argument that does not stand up. So... The fact that they're, they've now gotten this through the House and it's likely to get through the Senate is amazing. But, like they said, Trump might veto it. Now, if Trump vetoes it, first of all, every single Democrat in the country should be hair on fire out there slamming in him day in, day out, day in, day out. But furthermore, assuming he vetoes it, take his bitch ass to court. Because there was never an approval in the first place to... to aid Saudi Arabia in destroying Yemen. For us to be in Yemen, as we are, by the way, assisting with airstrikes. There was never that authorization in the first place. There was also never authorization for us to be in fucking Syria. So all of these interventions are unconstitutional. You could say the war in Afghanistan is not. You could say, arguably, the war in Iraq, I mean, it is because it's illegal under international law, but you could say at least, there's, at least it passed in the U.S., But outside of Iraq and Afghanistan, which we need to end, all the other ones are just brazenly illegal interventions. Brazenly. So uh, Rokhan did an amazing thing here. Credit to him, credit to everybody who sided with him, credit to even uh, the people on the Republican side who crossed the aisle and and supported this and asserted their constitutional authority. And this is the first time since 9-11 that Congress flexed their, um, their authority on war issues. So we need to get back to that because Congress is going to be a lot more accountable to you and I and the will of the people than the executive branches. And we've seen it, listen, not just under Republican presidents, under Democratic presidents. You know, it was Barack Obama who took us from bombing two countries to seven. He actually increased in Afghanistan. He got us out of Iraq for three and a half minutes and put us right back in. So with Congress saying, no, no, we're going you know, to be the ones to get the last word on this, that's wonderful. But also the next step is, because it's not like Congress is that much better. They are better than just the executive branch making these decisions because there's some accountability that's dispersed. But then also we've got to get the military-industrial complex money out of the system because you're going to have many people who have conflict of interest and henceforth will make the wrong decision. But Ro Khanna has done something amazing here. And this alone should put him on the map as leader of the Democrats. Ro Khanna has shown more leadership than Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer ever have. You can quote me on that, bitch. I mean it. That's real. Remember, it was also Ro Khanna and Bernie Sanders. They to love to, to look down their nose at progressives and say, "Ah." Oh. You have to be practical to get things done. What's wrong with you? You have to w- reach, reach across the aisle and give the Republicans everything they want. I have no problem with reaching across the aisle, but when it's towards something that actually is positive and works with our left-wing ideology because we're on the left, that's what Ro has done here. Furthermore, remember, it was Ro Khanna that got 350,000 Amazon workers um, a, a $15 minimum wage, a living wage. It was him and Bernie Sanders who came up with the Stop Bezos Act, which put so much pressure on Jeff Bezos, he was like, okay, don't pass that law. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to raise the wages. Oh, aren't I so benevolent? So it's only the left that actually gets stuff done that's good for the people. Have you noticed that? Yemen? Uh, Amazon? I mean, come on, man. So this is leadership, and... Ro Khanna is the ideas person on the left who's leading on many fronts. It was him and Ilhan Omar who were the only ones to speak out on Venezuela in a forceful way and be clear in their message. Bernie uh, said something that was convoluted, and uh, AOC had retweeted Ro Khanna's statement on it, but it was Ro Khanna and and Ilhan Omar who really stuck their neck out there and said, no, this is wrong, and we shouldn't be doing it. And Tulsi Gabbard, by the way. Credit to Tulsi Gabbard, who's also been a leader on these issues. Um, But this is real leadership and it's a good day when we finally 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 take a step towards rolling back one of our disastrous interventions and of course i would go further but you guys know me i mean i would cut off all military aid to saudi arabia and say duh <laughs> of course we shouldn't be of course we shouldn't be giving them military intervention but then again i'd also do it to israel <gasps> How dare I? How anti-Semitic it is of I to say uh, that a right-wing maniac like Netanyahu shouldn't have weapons. $38 billion worth of weapons where he then turns around and uses it towards um, you know, backing apartheid and expanding illegal settlements. So I would stop arming every human rights violator that we arm. And by the way, you would see a giant decrease in terrorism immediately if you did that because it's our weapons that end up in the hands of al-Qaeda in Syria, that ends up in the hands of al-Qaeda in Yemen. Um, so if we just stopped arming everybody. That would be a, 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 an amazing change overnight, and violence would decrease massively the world over overnight. So I would do that too. But this is a, I mean, this is really wonderful of Rokana here. And um, I have a feeling he's going to continue to lead on these issues. And if he keeps racking up W's like this, look out, man, because Rokana is the future of the Democratic Party. Okay, next. Bitch. Give me some of that, bitch. All right, Ben Shapiro. He's going to get it. He's going to get it. He's going to get it. Buckle up, son. So Ben Shapiro uh, went on his show and decided to respond to Ilhan Omar. Of course, he's responding to the non-controversy controversy where everybody in Washington, D.C., at the exact same time, decided to pretend that Ilhan Omar is an anti-Semite because she's against money in politics and she's against corruption. Um, it's, of course, the all about the Benjamins tweet. Glenn Greenwald said that uh, it's amazing that uh, Kevin McCarthy, among others, are taking away the free speech rights uh, of and cracking down on the first two female Muslim uh, congresswomen and... Um, She said it's all about the Benjamins in response to that. And then when pressed, what do you mean? Are you trying to say that Jews control the world? Uh, Her response was, no, I'm talking about IPAC or AIPAC. They're, you know, they basically buy Congress people to do the bidding of the Israeli government. That's not controversial. By the same token, if you say the Saudi lobby has bought favors and bought politicians to do their bidding we file that under the duh category okay the saudi lobby bought in trump's dc hotel they went nuts and spent hundreds of thousands of dollars Then, oh would you look at that a multi-billion dollar weapons deal just got approved by donald trump when he used to say that they were responsible for 9-11 and their terrible government now all of a sudden he's approving multi-billion dollar weapons deals with them it's almost like you know corruption is at work here it's almost like uh people put morality aside and they go i don't know they're buttering my bread so i'm going to do what they want That's what happens with Saudi Arabia, that's what happens with Israel, that's what happens with uh, the NRA, that's what happens with fucking Wall Street, that's what happens with uh, the military-industrial complex. I mean, the fact that I have to point this out is honestly fucking embarrassing. It shows you that people are intellectually dishonest on this front, okay? And when it came to uh, Ilhan Omar, a a black Muslim woman pointing it out about Israel, you must be an anti-Semite. And the other point that many people have been making is, it must be deep-seated in her heart. Funny how when you have Keith Ellison, Muslim uh, congressperson, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, immediately they jump to, you must be an anti-Semite. Can't be that you're criticizing money in politics, and specifically on this front, AIPAC and Israeli uh, money in politics that biases politicians in a pro-Israel direction. Can't be that, no. Must be that you're an anti-Semite. So here's Ben Shapiro in a totally unhinged and insanely moronic rant on this front. Take a look.
4: The first tweet was in response to Glenn Greenwald, who himself is a rabid anti-Israel, anti-Semite. He's a self painting Jew. He wrote, GOP leader Kevin McCarthy threatens punishment for Ilhan, uh, Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib over their criticisms of Israel. It's stunning how much time U.S. political leaders spend defending a foreign nation, even if it means attacking free speech rights of Americans. Nobody is attacking the free speech rights of Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib. They're sitting in Congress. They're sitting in Congress. They have not had their free speech rights violated. And yet, there's Glenn Greenwald suggesting that all of these Republicans are doing something deeply wrong by mentioning Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, both of whom happen to be radical anti-Semites. So Ilhan Omar tweeted out, quote, it's all about the Benjamins baby with a little music symbol. Now, as a Jew, one of the oft used anti-Semitic tropes, and this has been true for thousands of years, is that the Jews control the monetary systems with their shekels, that the Jews are an evil nefarious force behind world events spreading around money, and that the reason that people support the Jews is because they've been corrupted by the Jew gold. It's been the Jew gold behind Republican support for the state of Israel, which of course is a complete lie. The vast majority of Americans support Israel and support Jews because they're not anti-Semitic and because they recognize that Israel is fighting against some of the worst people on planet Earth. It isn't really a hard choice when you have a choice between a democratic country that respects individual rights and evil Islamist dictatorship that tries to murder civilians in their bed. Right? Not a hard choice for most Americans. Very hard choice for a lot of Democrats, apparently. Ilhan Omar, though, suggests that the reason Republicans support Israel is because they're being paid off by the Jew gold. The reason that AIPAC gives money that they lobby, the reason that they lobby politicians is for a particular purpose. But if you think that their lobbying, number one, is restricted to people who are supremely pro-Israel. That is not true. They had Barack Obama speak at the APAC conference controversially, they had Joe Biden speak at the APAC conference controversially. The only person I'm aware who has not been able to speak at the APAC conference was Ron Paul. So they allow pretty much everybody to speak at the APAC conference. APAC does not own does not own the United States Congress by dint of paying people. This is sort of a similar trope to the idea that people in America are pro-gun because the NRA is signing them checks. Except now it's the nefarious Jews spending their shekels, the shekel masters spending their shekels trying to convince Republican Congresspeople. And now I have to mention, one of the weird things about this particular notion is the idea that Congress people are, are able to be bought and paid for. If that were the case, wouldn't you think that APAC would just ratchet up its spending and buy a bunch of Democrats? Why is it that everybody who's always worried about campaign spending is themse- those people are themselves immune to such corruption? I remember asking this about John McCain when John McCain was, was talking about campaign finance reform. Oh, there's too much money in politics. People are buying politicians. Weird, John McCain, you haven't been bought, so why is it that you think everybody around you has been bought, but you have not been bought? There are certain rare instances in which Congress people are actually corrupt and take money from particular lobbies to change their views. That's pretty rare. Most people who are, who are picking up support are picking up support because they preheld those views.
1: That is literally the dumbest rant on politics I've ever heard in my life. That is the most naive horseshit I've ever heard in my life. In order to try to bend over backwards to make the case that no, Ilhan Omar is an anti-Semite, yeah, that's, that's what it is, he ends up arguing that Congress is not corrupt. You heard him say it right there at the end. You said, well, it's rare, it's rare that a congressperson is corrupt. The idea that you can buy Congress people? Ha <laughs> ha ha! Crazy! (laughs) Alex Jones! (laughs) You're embarrassing, Ben. Like, I I got news for you, buddy. Just because you speak fast doesn't mean you're making good points. And just because you duped over a lot of people to follow you doesn't mean you're making good points. So, I mean, there there are so many ways to attack an insanely off-base claim that he's making. But let's start with just some simple points. You do know that Congress's approval rating oscillates between, like, 9% and 21%, right? And that's literally even after you just elect them. You just elect them. You come back, like, a month later, and you poll people. Hey, what do you think of Congress? The approval rating will fall between 9% and 21%. It's regularly in the teens. Why? Why is that? In what's supposed to be a constitutional republic and a representative democracy. Why is that? The answer is very simple. Everybody knows they're always voting for the lesser of two evils. And you're choosing between um, one set of special interests or another set of special interests when you vote for um, the Republicans or the Democrats. You vote for the Republicans. They're going to end up serving Wall Street. They're going to end up serving the NRA. They're going to end up serving big oil. They're going to end up serving uh, big pharma you vote for the Democrats. Uh, some, of, some of the time there's crossover corruption, and the lobbies do by both parties. So the Democrats, you're still going to get uh, them supporting Wall Street. You're still going to get them supporting big pharma. But some of, the other, some of the special interests differ. Like the Democrats, generally speaking, don't take the NRA money and the gun lobby money. They generally don't take the oil money. They certainly don't take as much oil money. Um, but they do take, for example, union money. They do take uh, money from lawyers. So you're just, you're always deciding between the lesser of two evils. Hey, which corrupt side am I going to vote for? Am I going to vote for the people bought by this group of special interests or that group of special interests? And that's why everybody hates Congress. And that's why in a country where we elect our leaders, we turn around a month later and we go, I hate these motherfuckers. Okay, now beyond that, it's not my opinion, it's a fact. There was a Princeton political science study that came out a few years back, which very simply stated the U.S. functionally is an oligarchy. It's not a democracy. Over 90% of the time, the person who raises the most money ends up winning. And in order to raise the most money in this system, you need to go to billionaires, you need to go to millionaires, you need to go to corporations and special interests. And you raise money from them, you make promises to them, and so you end up doing their bidding. That's exactly what this study laid out. It said, if you look at the opinions of the top 1% in corporations, you look at the things that are their priorities, Congress almost always is... Uh, implementing policies and, and passing laws that help that constituency. But they never are passing laws which the overwhelming majority of the American people support. So, for example, 80% of the American people want to raise the minimum wage. Why haven't we had a, a minimum wage raised in over a decade? Why is that? Well, very simply, the people controlling the politicians through lobbyist money, through corruption, it's the corporations, and that's the only group in the country that does not want to raise the minimum wage. 80% of the American people want to raise it, it doesn't change. Uh, When it comes to universal background checks, over 90% of the American people uh, want that. We haven't gotten it. Why? Gun lobby money, funds the Republican Party. The Republican Party blocks any and all gun legislation. And I can go on and on here, man. The list goes on and on here. Legalizing marijuana. 62% of the country wants to legalize marijuana. Why haven't we legalized uh, marijuana? There's a, a very powerful lobby fighting it. That lobby includes Big Pharma. That lobby includes uh, alcohol and tobacco companies. And that lobby includes, by the way, uh, there are some uh, government agencies like the DEA uh, and and police unions who are like, no, 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 never. We, We don't want that to happen. So I can give you all these different policies where the American people are like, we want that, and then we don't get it. And we don't get it because of money and politics. The war in Afghanistan, there was a poll from 2013 which showed that the war in Afghanistan was the most unpopular war ever, ever, 17% approval rating, more unpopular than Vietnam. We're still there now, 17 years later, even when Trump pretended, oh, we're going to get out. But when you read the details, he's taken the troop uh, total down from 14,000 to 7,000. Wow, keeping 7,000 troops there, and we're going to call that like a withdrawal? That's not withdrawing, you're keeping 7,000 troops there. Why? Because money impacts politics. Okay, now come full circle. Ilhan Omar, she was saying very clearly it's all about the Benjamins in that many politicians in the U.S., especially on the Republican side, but even over half of the Democratic Party, they take money from the Israel lobby, and then they end up doing their bidding, and they end up being in favor of policies that are massively in favor of the right-wing Israeli government. We gave them a $38 billion weapons deal. At the same time that the U.N. has been screaming at the top of their lungs, they keep expanding illegal settlements. This is terrible. This is not okay. So we look at, uh, you know, a top ally of ours casually violating international law on a regular basis, and we're like, let's arm them. What the fuck? No strings attached, no hay. In order to, to get any aid or, or, or weapons from us, you have to stop building illegal settlements, roll back the current illegal settlements, sit down and do a peace deal. We don't do that. And again, by the way, it's not just Israel, Saudi Arabia. Same fucking thing. So calling out Saudi influence in Washington, D.C., is that Islamophobic? By your logic, Ben fear it is. Oh, you can't talk about that. You can't criticize the Saudi government and how they've bought American politicians because that's Islamophobic. That's the argument you're making when it comes to AIPAC. It honestly, Ben, it's fucking embarrassing. I mean, it's like one of the dumbest arguments I've ever heard anybody make. Um, now... Let's go through some other uh, specific points there. Um, I like how he said at one point, well, you know, you got AIPAC and you got some of these donors. They're, they're doling out money for, uh, for a specific purpose. Go back and watch his clip again. You'll hear him say it in the middle. He's talking about like, that's it's not corruption. And you can't buy politicians. And, you know, you got these uh, pro-Israel donors, and they're doling out money for um, a specific purpose. Yeah, what purpose? Pro-Israel purpose. Did you know Sheldon Adelson, Sheldon Adelson, in one election cycle alone in 2012, spent over $90 million trying to get Republicans elected? Ben Shapiro, are you going to say to everybody with a straight face that, oh, no, he's just giving them that money because he agrees on uh, abortion with the Republicans? Uh, Haim uh, Saban, or however you say his name, he gives massive amounts of money to our politicians. And you know what he said? I'm a single-issue voter. That issue is Israel. So is he giving that money for other reasons? No, he's saying it. He's saying it. This is is the issue I care deeply about. I'm going to try to influence politicians to uh, uh, do my bidding. Again, that's not anti-Semitic at all that's pointing out the facts on the ground and the empirical reality. Why are you trying to deny this? I mean, again, it's super embarrassing. Um, then I like how he says, ah, they're not, are you kidding me? They don't try to influence people in a pro-Israel direction. They had Barack Obama and Joe Biden speak at AIPAC. Yeah. That doesn't, that doesn't make your point. That makes our point. <laughs> the Democratic Party, yes, by and large, overwhelmingly, definitely the establishment of the Democratic Party, has been doing policy that's in favor of Israel for decades. I mean, where's the debate? It was Barack Obama who gave Israel Iron Dome. Now, I know in, in Ben Shapiro's myth bubble, he thinks like, oh, Barack Obama is massively anti-Israel. He gave them billions of dollars in weapons. He gave them billions of dollars in aid. He gave them Iron Dome. He sat by and didn't do dick as uh, Netanyahu did a... Bomb fest in 2014 and he massacred children. Uh, you know, it was over 80% civilian death rate according to the UN when that happened. And what did the defenders of human rights and justice, the United States, do? Nothing. We rearmed them as they did it. So for him to act like, what do you mean? It's not all about just being pro Israel. That's why they had Obama and Biden speak. They're massively pro Israel, you dipshit! God damn it. Um, and then uh, finally, he says, well, Glenn Greenwald is a rabid anti-Semite, self-hating Jew. I love this because this is from the same crowd of people who have made it one of their main points after Trump got elected to bend over backwards and say, ah, you know what the problem is with these left-wingers? They're false cries of bigotry. Everybody's a racist. Everybody's a misogynist. Everybody's a xenophobe. Everybody's a bigot. You know? And this, What's wrong with them? Why do they always... When they don't have an argument, they just jump to name-calling and they, and they do these false cries of bigotry. The exact fucking thing he accuses left-wingers of doing is what he's doing right here. And by the way, you guys know me. I make sure that whenever, whenever I make an accusation like that, I try to have a, an abundance of evidence before I say somebody's racist or, or sexist or xenophobic or, or bigoted or whatever. Because I do think that's a charge you should have a lot of evidence for. And as I said, when it came to voting for Trump, I think the deciding factor that got him over the edge was the Rust Belt. And in the Rust Belt, the main reason he won was economic populism. So, uh, you know, you can't flip this back on me and say, well, oh, well, fine, it's coming back to bite you, Kyle, because you've been doing the false cries of bigotry forever. No, I haven't. I simply haven't. When I accuse somebody that, there's a massive amount of evidence, and I make sure there's the evidence. But he's doing the thing he accuses left-wingers of doing oh, these false cries of bigotry. Obviously, Glenn Greenwald's a self-hating Jew and a rabid anti-Semite. You're throwing around anti-Semite like, fucking, like, like M&M's here. <laughs> what the fuck is wrong with you? And um, that just, it shows his utter hypocrisy. And then the final point is just a flat-out lie. Either that or he's so ignorant that he shouldn't be talking about this issue at all. He goes, well, nobody's attacking anybody's free speech, rights. He said that in response to Glenn Greenwald's tweet. Dude, the first bill the Senate took up was a bill that promotes uh, states taking away uh, people's ability to express, to express support for BDS. It's the first bill the Senate brought up. It wants to incentivize states to crack down on people who support BDS, basically by saying, hey, if you as an individual support BDS, you can't get a government contract. Now, if you as an individual support a boycott of Saudi Arabia, can you get a government contract? Yep. If you as an individual, support a boycott of the American government. Uh, can you get a, a, a government contract? Yes, you can. You could say, I hate my government. You could say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, you know, I want to uh, leave this country because of what we've done to Afghanistan and Iraq. You can still get a, a government contract. It's only Israel. If you, uh, I, don't, I don't like what they're doing. I don't like how they're expanding illegal settlements and permanently occupying the Palestinians. No government contract for you. By the way, there's laws on the books in over a dozen states that are anti-BDS laws, did you know that in Houston, they had the hurricane not that long ago, in order to get hurricane relief, you had to sign an agreement that said, I, will, uh, I promise I do, do not support boycotts, divestments, and sanctions of Israel. So when you say, oh, what do you mean? There's nothing, it, nobody's taking away anybody's free speech, right? That's factually wrong. In fact, there was a, one case in Kansas, I think, and one in Arizona, where... Um, they came up with these laws. They went to court. The judges struck down the law, and they said, no, no, you literally can't do this. This is directly against First Amendment rights, because they're trying to control political speech and say there's going to be punishment for you if you're against BDS. So it's already gone to court, and courts have already said, yeah, that's that's a violation of free speech rights. But now, Washington, D.C., is still trying to pass different versions of these laws. And there's one uh, Democratic version, which is it tries to skirt around the legality issue and use softer language. And then there's the Marco Rubio version, which it goes is obviously a violation of the First Amendment, and, and the language is very clear. And it's the first thing they did in the Senate. Now, if I say, hey, I'm pretty sure one of the main reasons they did that is the Israel lobby money buying our politicians, then that's called OBVIOUS. That's called objectively true. But you're bending over backwards to say that's not the case. You're either lying or you're massively ignorant on this issue. And I still can't get over the fact that one of the main points on the right has been, oh my God, with all the false cries of bigotry on the left, and you cannot wait to call people anti-Semites. It's so pathetic and so sad. It really is, man. I don't know how anybody could listen to this rant and take what you say seriously. In service of making your point, you literally said it's rare that we have corrupt Congress (laughs) people. I mean, that's so stupid. I don't even know why I'm bothering to respond to that point in your argument, because it, it flips the reality directly on its head, and it exposes you for what you are, which is in over your head. Well, that was fun to utterly destroy this child. Okay, next. Next, next, next.
0: Next,
1: next, next. Next, next, next. All right, where's the video? Ilhan Omar versus um, Elliot Abrams. You guys are going to love this, baby. So Ilhan Omar is on, I think, the Foreign Affairs Committee is is what it's called, and she took on prominent neocon Elliot Abrams in a committee hearing. So Elliot Abrams was a 1980s Cold Warrior, and he was in charge of basically... What the fuck? Sorry. Something popped up in the background. All right, let me start that over, because something popped up in the background, and it wasn't
4: cool.
5: Wait for it.
1: The graphic over my shoulder. There was like a pop-up. All right, here we go. So Ilhan Omar uh, took on prominent neocon Elliot Abrams in uh, a foreign affairs committee hearing. Now Abrams has been picked by Donald Trump to run his uh, his Venezuela operation. And for those of you who don't know, Elliot Abrams was a 1980s Cold Warrior, and he was in charge of effectively destroying uh, South America. So, you know, this was during the Cold War, they were afraid of the scourge of communism is going to take over in our hemisphere. We can't allow that. So what do you do, you go topple democratically elected leaders, um, put in puppet dictators who will serve U.S. interests, and that's exactly what this guy was the head of. Okay, so it's on record. He's a terrible guy talking about him being a war criminal. The same thing as talking about Henry Kissinger being a war criminal. Anybody who's educated on this stuff goes, duh, that's what he is. Well, look at the line of questioning she gave to this weakly little prick. I love this. Watch.
2: From Ms. Obama.
6: Thank you, Chairman. Um, thank you all for being here, and thank you for your uh, testimonies. Mr. Adams, in 1991, you pleaded guilty to two counts of withholding information from Congress regarding your involvement in the Iran-Contra affair, for which you were later pardoned by President George H. W. Bush. I fail to understand uh, why members of this committee or the American people should find any testimony that you give. Uh, today, to be truthful.
0: If I can respond to that.
6: Uh, um, it wasn't a question. Uh, I would, On February, that was it's not, a, was not I would, that was not a question. Sure. That was I. Well, I the reserve first, the right I'm, to my time.
0: It is not. It is not right.
6: That was, that was not the a question. can attack. On February 8th, who is not permitted to reply? That that was not a question. Thank you for your participation.
5: On February 8th,
6: 1982 you testified before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee about U.S. policy in El Salvador. In that hearing, you dismissed as communist propaganda report about the massacre of El Masote in which more than 800 civilians, including children as young as two years old, were brutally murdered by U.S.-trained troops. During that massacre, some of those troops bragged about raping a 12-year-old girl before they killed them, girls before they killed them. You later said that the U.S. policy in El Salvador was a fabulous achievement. Yes or no, do you still think so?
0: From the day that President Duarte was elected in a free election to this day, El Salvador has been a democracy. That's a fabulous achievement.
6: Yes or no, do you think that massacre was a fabulous achievement that happened under our watch?
0: That is a ridiculous question. And I yes will not or no? It.
6: No.
4: I, I will, sorry, I will take I am, that as a yes.
0: I am not going to respond to that kind of personal attack, which is not a question.
6: Yes or no, would you support an arms? faction within Venezuela that engages in war crimes, crimes against humanity, or genocide, if you believe they were serving U.S. interests, as you did in Guatemala, El Salvador, and Nicaragua.
0: I am not gonna respond to that question, I'm sorry. I don't think this entire line of questioning is meant to be real questions, and so I will not reply.
1: Now, you'll notice he did not answer that last question, That last question was, would you support, you know, like an armed coup, an armed group uh, committing war crimes in Venezuela if they're backing U.S. interests? And he said, I'm not going to respond to that question. I mean, listen, that's historically, that's exactly what he's done. So he doesn't answer that question because the answer is yes, because in his mind— well, the ends justify the means. So, you know, you gotta crack a couple legs to make an omelet. So, you gotta murder a couple people here, murder a couple people there to get rid of these left wing evil commies to put in a freedom loving democracy. Well, then, oh, of course, we gotta do what we gotta do. But what he doesn't tell you is, again, he backed dictators. Now, let me be specific. Uh, he was in charge in Nicaragua, El Salvador, and Guatemala. He backed literal death squads. Uh, one of the one of the dictators. Efrain Rios Montt was found guilty of overseeing a campaign of mass murder and torture of indigenous people in Guatemala. And the dude was found guilty of genocide. We backed him, we propped him up. In El Salvador, the uh, U.S.-backed forces committed what um, Ilhan Omar touched on there, which is the uh, El Mazote Massacre, killing 500 innocent civilians on purpose. So again, I I need to be clear about this. His history is not up in the air. It's not open to interpretation. It's not open to debate. It's very clear that during the Cold War, the U.S. said, your democratically elected leaders, gone in South America. What we're going to do is we're going to uh, give you democracy, and it was just right-wing puppet dictators. And in order to get to that point, they literally backed death squads, supported uh, mass murderers and torturers. So that's who he is. He's a war criminal in the same way that Henry Kissinger is a war criminal. And now Trump brought him back. And notice something. When they actually, when somebody actually pushes on their record, they melt. Because all it is, uh, underneath the suit and the veneer of respectability, it's nothing but let me talk to your managerism. Like, oh, how, could, how dare you? It's a young woman of color in hijab telling me that I've done bad things. No, I refuse to partake in this dog and pony show. Yeah, but we see through you. Ultimate snowflakes. What happened, buddy? If really, if, you're, if you think your record is that easy to defend, why do you need to pull the, you're being so politically incorrect and I'm now a snowflake card? Why can't you just say, no, and here, let me walk you through it. Here's why that's wrong. Because you can't do it. Because you know she's right. In the same way Henry Kissinger is a bloodthirsty warmonger, war criminal, neocon, that's what you are bloodthirsty, warmonger, war criminal, neocon. That's what your record is, and you can't defend it. And we now, listen, That's it. you think they're not planning by any means necessary to take out Maduro in Venezuela? Again, to say nothing about Maduro's leadership, that's not the point here. They will do anything to get that guy out, including the bullshit PR stent. Remember, one of the things that uh, Elliot Abrams did in the 1980s, he would send... Um, He would send this cargo and say, oh, it's humanitarian aid and food, and your people are starving. Here, take our aid. And then what it really was was weapons to go to right-wing death squad so they can start a violent coup. That's what he did. That's on the record. That's proven. So what ended up happening as a result of that, and we still see the effects to this day, is now people in third-world countries all around the world they uh, look skeptically at um, aid groups. In fact, aid groups are the, the people on the front lines who are screaming at the U.S., stop doing these PR stunts, stop pretending like you're sending aid and sending weapons, stop uh, you know, doing this, because then what happens is they are, end up being the victims of it, because when they try to actually help people, people are, are skeptical of them, rightly so, because they think everything is you know, a, a secret U.S. plot. Another example of this is in Pakistan, uh, the U.S. did fake vaccinations to try to uh, get intelligence to track down Osama bin Laden. So now people in developing countries are like, do I want to go to a, this, you know, actual aid group in order to get a vaccine? No, because what if it's the U.S.? And what if they're uh, fucking around again? So they just did it again in Venezuela. We just showed you the story about, oh, my God, the bridge has been shut down and Maduro's not letting in aid for his own people. That bridge was never in use. It was never in use. And again, he has a history of sneaking in weapons under the guise of this is humanitarian aid and food. So that's what he did. This guy's legacy, listen, he should be in prison. He really should. And what you've seen here is, a oh, great job from Ilhan Omar because she unmasked how gross Washington, D.C. is. Because on Twitter, after, after Ilhan Omar did this, you literally saw hot takes from, uh, you know, supposed liberals who were like, um, Ilhan Omar was very impolite to him. Sure, he did, he may have done some bad things and I don't agree with him, but she was very impolite to him and, and it's unfair. You know, uh, Elliot Abrams was very nice to me when I fucking uh, was an intern for him in whatever, 1998, whatever the fuck. Like, these are some tweets that people were sending out. And when I tell you they got ratioed out of existence, goodness gracious, because people were like, I do not give a fuck. Hitler was kind to dogs. Does that mean he's not a shitty person? And yes, I am comparing this dude to Hitler. Because what we did during the Cold War and how we violently overthrew democratically elected governments, that's terrorism. That's the textbook definition of terrorism. Elliot Abrams is a terrorist. That's what he is. So I'm not mincing words. You can quote me on that because it's true. And everybody needs to understand that. And for people who fall into that trap of like, well, he was nice to me, and he runs in the same kind of foreign policy circles, and he's a mild-mannered guy, for you to fall into that trap, I need you to understand something. In order for you to fall into that trap, you have to buy into uh, this working assumption, this premise. And that premise is, when we do it, we mean well, so it doesn't really count. If you have U.S. war criminals, well, we've meant it with the most benign and wonderful intentions. So when we massacre civilians, when we back death squads, when we do torture, when we prop up dictators, it doesn't really count. We can never really be just the bad guys. Well, if you believe that, you're not thinking about this stuff objectively. You've just fallen into a lazy mental trap. And it's sad to see because so many people believe that now. So many people are on that page because they've been so thoroughly brainwashed and they've so thoroughly drunk the Kool-Aid of violent empire. So credit to Ilhan Omar because she's unmasking the system here. And um, listen, you guys know me; I'm against identity politics, and I talk about that on a regular basis. But I can't help but conclude a little bit here that maybe it is her own personal experience as a, you know, a, a refugee, a young Muslim woman of color, how her perspective on the world is shaped by that. And so she's kind of removed; she's been so removed from centers of power for her life that when she gets into an area of power, she brings that outsider's perspective and she can see it from the perspective of the victims as opposed to Elliot Abrams, who is the perpetrator and rationalizes it in all these high-minded ways. And he thinks, I wear a suit and I'm a respectable old white man. So obviously I've never done anything wrong. So while I'm still a critic of identity politics, because I think policy matters above all else, uh, I do see how it can absolutely be beneficial to bring in people of all different backgrounds because you do get, generally speaking, a different perspective when you come from a different class background, a different ethnic background, a different religious background. There are no hard, fast rules on that front because people are individuals. But you could definitely see how that may have impacted. Um, I, there's a great quote. AOC tweeted it the other day. She was quoting somebody else. I think it was Ayanna Presley, where she said, we need more people. The people who are closest to the pain need to be closer to power because they understand more. And I, I, I think that's a fair point. I think that's a fair point. It's one of the main reasons why it's absolutely unfathomable that you have, you know, Congress and all the elites in D.C. They're almost all massively rich, so they, do, they cannot relate to the, the pains of, of a middle-class person, a working-class person. Now, by the way, that's not saying that like all wealthy people are fundamentally incapable of it because there are people who are relatively wealthy, like Bernie Sanders, even though he's the poorest member of the Senate. But he's still relatively wealthy when you compare him to the rest of the United States. And he does get it. But I think the point is that as it, broadly speaking, generally speaking, yes, you we should have people of you know a working class background elected. Uh, in D.C. because they are more likely to represent working people. Again, it's not a hard and fast rule. It is possible to have a poor person who's against the interests of poor people and a rich person who's for the interests of poor people. But generally speaking, I think statistically it would bear out that most of the time the person who's coming from that working class background will be more likely to represent working people. So anyway, great job from Ilhan Omar here. This was quite a sight to see. And fuck Elliot Abrams, he should be rotting in prison. All right, let me do one more, then we'll take our first break. We got Howard Schitz. All right, let's do the green... No, the uh, Medicare for All one
5: first.
1: Okay, wait, where's the Medicare for All one? Where you at, bitch? Okay. So Howard Schitts was asked about his position on Medicare for All and on health care, and he proceeded to incoherently babble, contradict himself, make no sense, and expose how he has never really thought about this for more than five minutes.
7: Hello. So I'm wondering, what is your view on Medicare for All? More specifically, what is your plan to improve our health
3: care system? Uh, Again, thank you for the question, and I think this gives me another opportunity to talk about the extreme left and the extreme right. And so we have a healthcare crisis in the country on many levels, not the least of which is the opioid crisis, but the Republicans for ten years, eight years during the Obama presidency in the last two years, have done everything possible to eradicate the Affordable Care Act, and they've done that without offering any plan. This is the far right. The far left is now suggesting Medicare for all. That is a $32 trillion number and and just like the issue I brought up before about making all the buildings in America energy uh, uh, free in terms of of clean energy, Mm -hmm. does anyone here really understand that Medicare for all also means that you will lose the choice of your doctor and your private insurance company? not many people know that so that would disrupt the entire system and it'll cost 32 trillion dollars so mr schultz to that to that question and and
7: because your question real was about what's your plan and and many i think wonder is it fair to criticize the left and the right what is your plan to make sure that every if it's not medicare for all what is your plan to make sure that every american can get quality affordable
3: health care first and foremost three principles one I think everyone in America, every person deserves to have the right for affordable care. Every person. Second, there needs to be competition in the system. And what I mean by that is competition so that the American people can get access to prescription drugs at lower prices because right now the government is not allowed under a federal law to negotiate with, with, with pharma. The third thing is that it has been tested but not proven yet about interstate commerce among insurance companies. Sure. But there's no doubt that, once again, the healthcare crisis has been with us for a long time. The other issue is I stand by the fact that I supported the Affordable Care Act. It covered 20 million people who did not have good insurance, but premiums have gone up double since the Affordable Care Act. So now we've got to go back in and fix the Affordable Care Act and bring premiums down. Competition will do that. But the far right, remove the How? The yeah.
7: question is how. Yeah. And I don't mean to start over you from the back. No. The voice over your shoulder no. over here. Yeah. But but how specifically? Yeah. Because I think so many people here hear that, yeah. but they say that is what Congress has been trying
3: to do or talking no, not. about it's doing not. You're wrong. for so long. And respectfully, it's not what Congress has been trying to do. What Congress has tried to do is on the far right, eradicate the Affordable Care Act, and now on the far left, bring up Medicare for all.
1: Okay, so that was a fucking dumpster fire and a complete disaster. Now, before I get into the specifics of responding to his points here, to the extent that you can ascertain that he has any points, um, just understand something. The thing about Howard Schultz that keeps popping up in my mind is this basic point. He's so obnoxious because He fancies himself like the savior coming to rescue the country from the evil billionaire, Donald Trump. And he thinks, I'm the good billionaire, and I'm going to ride in on my white horse and fix the country. But the reason why that's so arrogant and so wrong and just insufferable is that he actually perfectly represents the mindset and philosophy that gave us Donald Trump in, in, in the first place. So Donald Trump was a fake populist. That's why he got elected. One of the main reasons why he got elected, of course, there are other factors and other massive factors, in fact, but uh, he, he was able to win the Rust Belt, and the main reason he won the Rust Belt was because of his economic populism. I'm not going to ship your jobs overseas. I hate NAFTA. I hate TPP, so on and so forth. What is Howard Schultz? To, to sum him up in one word, elitist. That's his philosophy, so he represents the neoliberal centrist world order that gave us Trump in the first place. You have somebody who comes along who says, Oh, I'm a civilized man. I'm not a Neanderthal barbarian like these people on the right. So I, for one, do not hate black people or gay people. Oh, wow, Howard. How how fucking incredible you are. That's such a fucking low bar. Duh. I file that under duh. That's the most obvious thing ever. Yes, treat black people, gay people, and everybody uh, equally and give them justice and support things like anti-discrimination protections and support things like, you know, um, in the case of gay people, support gay marriage, which, again, is a no-brainer. But, like, he uses that, and that's his progressive credentials. Is like, me, I'm very cosmopolitan. yeah. But then on economics, standard neoliberal hack, standard establishment hack oh, competition is good, we should probably, uh, you know, deregulate Wall Street, and um, uh, big business is good, and it's, this, it's like, he is Hillary Clinton rebranded. <laughs> like, that's what he is. Except he's maybe a little more honest than Hillary Clinton. But That's what he is. And he's been doing this shtick. It's so funny because he keeps portraying himself as an outsider. like it's far left and far right, Democrats, Republicans. <laughs> Where's the rest of the country going to go, bro? an outsider. You are the embodiment of the establishment. Just because you want to run as an independent and still embody the philosophy of the establishment doesn't change anything. The only thing that changes is that you're not going to fucking win or come even close to winning and you're going to chip away 2% and then maybe help Donald Trump in the process. So just because you're running outside the two-party system does not mean you're actually representing a philosophy that's that's rogue, because it's not. It's utterly predictable. Okay, now, First and foremost, he loves to do extreme left and extreme right. By the way, just picking the midpoint between two things is not by definition correct. And I need everybody to stop with this lazy ass fallacy. I see it all over the place, all the fucking time, endlessly. And it drives me nuts every single time. That's like the lazy man's attempt at being an intellectual. Like, me, bro? I see some people over here. I see some people over there, and you know what I say, bro? Here's what I say. What about the middle point? Oh! Oh, man. That was genius. Is there a giant theorem you could show me on a blackboard that uh, demonstrates how you got to this incredible position of logic and reason? It's just so stupid. It's like, and and to illustrate that point, think of it, it when it comes to evolution. On this side, you have evolution. On the other side, you have a wizard in space created everything. Me? I think maybe a wizard oversaw evolution. Well, congratulations, then you're a fucking dipshit. <laughs> okay. So in in the case of healthcare, another clear example, the far right's position is, Alan Grayson got in trouble when he said it. If you get sick, die quickly. <laughs> Which is kind of true because they don't want to have to the insurance companies have to spend a lot of money to save people. Um but the actual position is keep the free market in place, free market, have a capitalist system, so you have a for-profit, unnecessary middleman, the insurance companies. Their business model is to deny care as much as possible because that's how they make their profit and that's how they please their shareholders. So their approach to it is we love capitalism and get rid of the lines around the states in order to incentivize competition. And in reality, by the way, that's just um, a tax avoidance scheme. What happens is all the insurance companies will set up shop in a state with the lowest taxes so they can make more money. And that usually that's Delaware. Delaware has a lot of uh, corporations there for that exact reason. And that's what they would end up doing. So it has nothing to do with actually fixing the system. It has to do with saving these insurance companies more money, giving them more money so they can have more profit. And Howard Schultz falls right into it. And that's like, oh, that's the, the solution is uh, competition. You have the extreme left and the extreme right. The extreme left wants to do what the rest of the developed world does and what they've proven is way better than our shitty-ass system, how they cover everybody and pay, like, half the amount and they have better health outcomes. The crazy left wants to do the thing that is, like, better. And then the right, uh, the right, their uh, philosophy is, um, let's keep 30 million people uninsured and let's keep our capitalist system in place. And you have these extremes and I'm in the middle point. Howard, the middle point was Obamacare, you fucking jackass. <laughs> it's a, God, he's so stupid. Then he goes on same scaremonger talking points, and I I now am on a personal jihad against every fucking journalist and reporter who does not call this out immediately whenever somebody says it, but Oh it cost thirty two trillion dollars. How are you gonna pay for it? Can you guys please do your fucking homework and correct them and state very clearly yeah it cost thirty two trillion. If you didn't have it, it would cost thirty seven trillion so you're saving five trillion, according to the University of Massachusetts Amherst, a study they did. You're saving five trillion when you do Medicare for all. Every journalist or reporter who does not point that out when somebody brings up that 32 trillion number, every single one of them is doing journalistic malpractice and is horrendous, horrendously bad at their job. Oh, it costs us 32 trillion, even though it would save us money. I'm not going to bring that part up. And then he goes on. You're going to lose the choice of your doctor. And your private insurance company (gasps) oh not my private insurance company who will think of etna executives dude you're such a joke okay listen medicare for all it does not abolish private insurance companies you can get supplemental private insurance if you'd like okay you can get it but the default is everybody's covered everybody's covered and it's free at the point of service, so if you get sick, you get help, and you don't have to pay anything. That's better. That's absolutely better. And he says you lose choice of your doctor. No, that's not true. It, you know, it's the same as, um, like, the system we have now. I have lost my doctor repeatedly because of my fucking insurance companies. Like, I've been with a bunch of different insurance companies, and every time I, okay, i got to change my insurance company this time. The price on this one is now too high. I go for a new insurance company. I'm like, okay, I want to keep going to my doctor. They're like, oh, we don't cover that. They're not in our network. So everything that they accuse, uh, you know, Medicare for all or single payer of being bad on, it's what the private system is bad on. Again, such a joke. Um, then notice he says, now let's get directly to his plan. Okay, his plan was a lack of a plan. He said, number one, you, I think you have a right to affordable care. Why do you, they keep adding the weasel words. I think everybody should have universal access. To affordable care. Here's how you know somebody's not a bullshitter. When they say, I support Medicare for all, full stop. Or I support single-payer healthcare," full stop. Those are the people who are not bullshitting you. The people who are bullshitting you will use the word access and affordable. Because what that means is, I just think you should be able to go to the doctor. Okay. And what affordable means is, I still want you to pay at the point of service. But I want it to be less expensive at the point of service. That's another bullshit half-measure, man, and the price will go right back up. You have to make it so it is free at the point of service. That's what Medicare for All is. So he says, I believe in a right to affordable care. Yes, so you still want people to pay out of pocket and do it at the point of access. And by the way, affordable is fucking subjective. What's affordable, Howard Schultz, is certainly not affordable to 99.9% of Americans. So weasel words 101. And then second point is competition we have a, a, a for-profit free market system right now. That's the heart of our system. How's everything going? Horrendously bad. We're 11 out of 11 when it comes to a developed countries in our health care system. That's the Commonwealth Fund. a study that came out a few years ago. So competition doesn't solve Dickie McGee's acts when it comes to health care. Then his third point is interstate commerce. That's the remove the lines around the states argument, which, again, I just told you is a tax avoidance scam has nothing to do with actually fixing the health care system. It has to do with helping the profits of the for-profit health insurance companies. And then finally, he finishes with like, I support the ACA, and we should just fix it. So I support Obamacare, but we should just fix it. He's the definition of a neoliberal centrist trying to put Band-Aids over gaping, gangrenous wounds. That's his philosophy. In other words, it's the same fucking nightmare scenario that got us to where we are right now. And that gets back to my main thesis. As he pretends to be the savior from Donald Trump, he embodies everything about the philosophy that gave us Donald Trump in the first place. And you see it perfectly in his explanation here. All he does is take what has now become the Democratic Party position and the Republican Party position, and he says, why don't we do the middle ground and do both of your shitty ideas? That's literally his argument. Let's take the shitty idea from the right of removing the lines around the states and and doing interstate commerce and competition. He takes the right-wing's core idea, which, again, is just a tax avoidance scam, and he says, why don't we do that and mix it with the shitty uh, original right-wing idea, which now the Democratic Party loves, which is Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, which is an individual mandate system. Let's uh, take both of these shitty ideas, which are on the right side of the political spectrum, and find the midpoint between them and do both of those things. So it's like, do double the shittiness and embrace the shittiness of both the establishment Democratic Party and the establishment Republican Party. Congratulations, asshole. This is why you're polling at 4%. I am on fire today, if I don't say so myself. (laughs) All right, let me take a break. When we come back, um, I got more Howard Shits, and then later on Kamala Harris went on the Breakfast Club, and yikes, was that a sight to not see. Stay right there. We'll be right back. go. Let's um, keep making fun of Howard Schitts because Howard Schitts um, spoke about the Green New Deal. Howard Schitts spoke about the Green New Deal during his uh, CNN town hall. And by the way, um, he hasn't even announced that he's running and he got a, a CNN town hall. Tulsi Gabbard isn't even included on many official mainstream media lists as to who's running for president and she's running for president. 538 had their little infographic with all the 2020 candidates. It included The Rock and it didn't include Tulsi Gabbard who already announced that she's running. Howard Schultz has gotten about 27 times the amount of mainstream media coverage than Richard Ojeda and he had announced, and of course he had to drop out, because he's like, nobody's bothering to cover me except like the Young Turks and new media outlets, so what am I going to do? I-, I feel bad uh, raising money from people to run for president when I know that the chance of us actually winning is so low because we can't get any traction, because mainstream media has, has it out for us, has, has us blacklisted. But Howard Schitts does not do anything, just by virtue of the fact that he's a billionaire... He's allowed on air. That's what it is. Uh, To steal from a friend, it's all about the Benjamins, baby. So he finds a way to just get on air because, what do you mean? I have money, I have power, and you're going to take me seriously. By the way, same thing happened with Ross Perot. Ross Perot was a billionaire. Remember when he ran in 1992? The only reason he was taken seriously is because he's a billionaire. So even though he's trying to posture as like, me, bro? I'm outside of this system. No, you are like somehow even more within the system than many of the candidates who are running within the two major parties. You're a perfect embodiment of the establishment, even as you pretend like you're against it. So um, anyway, Howard Schitts spoke about the Green New Deal, and it was just as bad as you'd expect.
7: Senator Markey yeah. and Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, do you think that they are being disingenuous with the American people?
3: Uh, When I read the Green New Deal and I try and understand what they're suggesting, I don't understand how you're going to give a job for everybody, how you're going to give free college to everybody, uh, how you're going to create clean energy throughout the country in every building of the land, and then tally this thing up with $32 trillion on Medicare for all. That's about $40 trillion plus. We are sitting, ladies and gentlemen, with $22 trillion of debt on the balance sheet of America. So once again, I, not that I'm a business person or I'm, an, or I'm an economist, and maybe an economist would disagree with me, but I think it's, not, it's immoral to suggest that we can tally up 20 30 $40, 50000000000000 trillion dollars of debt to solve a problem that could be solved in a different way. It's not that they're disingenuous. I think they're well-intentioned. This is not personal. I just don't agree this is the right way to approach
1: things. So let me explain why this is um, unbearable. It is always the Howard Schultz types, the corporate centrist types, who love to talk about how, oh, only in this country could I have made it. This country is number one. But then in the next breath, they say the same shit you just heard right there, which is when anybody comes up with the bold idea to move this country into the future, to create a better planet, to fight back against climate change, to give our, our people who don't have health care, health care, they always say, ah, be realistic, we can't do that. Wait, you were just talking about how we're the best country ever, and it's amazing, and only in this country can somebody make it, and we're number one. And then when somebody comes up with a bold idea, you're like, never, unrealistic, what's wrong with you, pie in the sky. Now, what I submit to you guys is this. Do you think that back when FDR did the New Deal, that, like, it was the consensus immediately, and everybody was like, oh, yeah, New Deal, wonderful. Everybody in Washington was like, oh, yeah, seems like an awesome idea, and we're totally for it. No. At the time, it faced tremendous opposition, and there were a lot of assholes out there, like Howard Schultz today, which... They ugh, ah, it is unrealistic, and I don't know if you've checked, but we're in a Great Depression, and that, sir, would cost a lot of money to do a new deal. Rinse and repeat, man, it's the same shit in every era. You're going to have the naysayers, you're going to have people say we can't do it, you're going to have people who say it's unaffordable, it's pie in the sky, it's this, it's that. Listen, he doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. He has a fundamental misunderstanding of economics. He's bought into an Austrian economist worldview, which, by the way, is not the consensus of most economists nowadays, but I would argue that the economists of today, the Keynesians, even they get a lot wrong, and there's a lot of truth in what the MMT folks talk about, and there's a lot of empirical evidence to back up what the modern monetary theory folks talk about. Howard Schultz has unquestionably never even heard of modern monetary theory. So when he goes out there and he does all this deficit deficit fear-mongering and debt-scolding, He isn't even aware of the counter-arguments to the positions he just thinks are obvious. And that's like the sign of somebody who's not intellectually curious, is that, you know, listen, when you control your own currency, you can be very flexible with it. Very flexible. In fact, as a general rule, and MMT economists have proved this, um, public deficits mean private surpluses. So usually when the government is... Uh, running in the red the private sector is actually doing well so we should think about why that is and then we should ask the question hey is it does it always make sense to want to like balance the budget is that is that concern always legitimate or sometimes is it perfectly legitimate to do deficit spending there have been people predicting like the collapse of the japanese economy for a long time because they have a lot of debt and it simply hasn't happened Maybe this perception of, like, oh my God, the debt is going to lead to a giant crisis, and the debt in and of itself is a problem. Maybe that's a fundamental misunderstanding of economics. And they don't, again, they don't even bother to try to understand the counter arguments, to try to look at the empirical evidence, to see if, you know, hey, maybe the raw number, talking about the raw number of debt makes no sense. Maybe you need to go to the debt to GDP ratio, which is a better measure of how you're doing. And then furthermore, maybe you need to look at, um, not just the numbers, but also massive political instability leads to something like inflation or helps to lead to something like inflation, when in their mind, they just think, like, debt equals bad because debt is the same as a household with debt. It is fundamentally not the same thing. Josh, uh, Josh Johnson, who's in a lot of debt, and he lives three doors down from you, um, that dude does not control his own currency. Personal finance is a lot different from when you're a sovereign government and you control your own currency. So the point is, guys, don't, the, the debt fearmongers are bullshitters, number one. Number two, they don't really know what the fuck they're talking about. They've never bothered to try to learn the counter arguments to their positions. And um, also, they always trot it out only when it comes to doing shit that helps you. When it's issues of healthcare and education, ah, oh, how can we afford it? A green new deal to give people jobs and to uh, fight back against climate change, ah, oh, don't be unrealistic. So just realize, they're they're transparent. These folks are. Have, has anybody ever deficit mongered over uh, war? No. No, they don't do it. Bailouts for Wall Street? No. It, uh, it is necessary to save the economy. Why isn't it necessary to save the economy to wipe out student loan debt? I would argue it is. I would argue it is. Why is it not necessary uh, from a humanitarian level and a moral level to cover everybody in this country with health care? Because we have 32 to 45,000 people that die because they don't have health care every year. For some reason, a Wall Street bailout is absolutely necessary. You can't question it. We have to go into debt to do it. It makes perfect sense. But when it comes to actual, actual people and helping them, no, can't do that. Unrealistic. Pie in the sky. And then, uh, you know, I also have to point out, he keeps misleading people on the cost of Medicare for All. He keeps saying, oh, $32 trillion, we can't afford it, we can't afford it. If we keep the system as it is, it's going to cost $37 trillion. According to a study from the University of Massachusetts Amherst, Medicare for All saves $5 trillion over a decade. So he doesn't tell you that. He tries to give you a big, scary number and say, oh, my God, we can't do it, big, scary number. He doesn't tell you what it would be like if we didn't do it. It's worse if we don't do it. And um, final point is this, there's a lot of misinformation out there on the Green New Deal. A lot of people have been tweeting me, hey, why aren't you talking about the Green New Deal? Why aren't you talking about the Green New Deal? Because the actual specific Green New Deal is not out yet, it's just the outline. And I don't think the outline is really worth uh, commenting on. I want to see the final product, and I want to see the details in the final product, and then I'm going to talk about it. But all I can tell you to this point is there is a tremendous amount of misinformation out there on the Green New Deal. And everybody's going to need to be skeptical at the shit you're going to read because there's a lot of people who are twisting shit and try, they're trying, they're, they have an agenda. And the agenda is, who is this you know dumbass, up-and-comer, a bartender girl who doesn't know anything, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? Isn't she so crazy? Isn't she so dumb? Ha-ha, look at what she's proposing. This is nonsense. So that's the agenda. And then they work backwards from that. So, for example, there's a lot of misinformation about And the Republicans are running with this. It's literally now a GOP talking point where Mitch McConnell's fucking talking about it. But they're saying, oh, she's trying to ban cars and ban airplanes. No, she's not. You just made that up. By the same token, there's there's a a fax sheet that was floating around that says, oh, the Green New Deal is going to provide money to people who are unwilling and who are unable and unwilling to work. Well, Shoika uh the chief of staff, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez both came out and said, that is not true. It's not true. So stop talking about it like it's in the bill. The bill isn't even crafty. It's just the outline of the bill. And there's a lot of shit people are running with that it's just fundamentally incorrect about the bill. And by the way, they were working with groups who floated this idea that I'm about to explain to you right now. Hey, how about if somebody was a coal miner and they worked for 40 years... And now you have some fucking bureaucrat coming along and saying, well, sorry, your job's going to get taken away, and maybe you should, you know, do job training and learn to code or something. How about uh, for those people who have given 40 years of their life and have had a profession, and now their pensions are being taken away from them, how about those people deserve financial security? That's the thing that everybody's mocking because the way it was written down was people who are unwilling and unable to work. Well, the chief of staff said, first of all, that's not in the bill, okay? It's just not. Second of all, the conversations people were having, that was the conversation. Coal miner who's worked for 40 years who had his pension jacked from him and assholes are stepping up saying, why don't you learn to do this, this, or this? No, how about for that person, those kinds of people, they deserve financial security. So just know there's going to be a lot of misinformation and they're going to try to, listen, when something starts gaining traction and is very popular and it threatens power centers, they will stop at nothing to try to crush it. And that includes outright lies. So just know that moving forward. By the same token, you hear all these insane stories about Medicare for all. Oh, my God, it's, it's way worse than the private system. What about the wait lines? They, they flip the truth on its head and come up with insane ideas to try to make you think, oh, obviously fixing our system and doing what every other developed country has done, that's a, that's a bad idea. So just have your eye op- eyes open for that. And um, Howard Schitts, the irony will never, uh, you know, not shock me that these are the same people who say America's number one. And then whenever you anything, propose anything that's bold, they turn around and go, oh, we can't, we can't do that. That's unrealistic. A lot of people were saying that back when FDR did the New Deal. And guess what? He was right. And people fighting for the Green New Deal today are also right. All right, one more on Howard Schitts. So Howard Schitts is uh, insanely delusional, and I couldn't believe this next clip that you're about to see because it looks like he genuinely thinks he can win.
7: that we received the most of by far ahead of this town hall was about your potential impact on the 2020 race. So on that topic, let me bring in Democrat Alex Lammers from Rice University a Freshman. What's your question?
8: Um, Hi. Uh, I'm not a fan of the two-party system. Your your statements about a widening ideological gap and functional divide between Democrats and Republicans are true but if you choose to run in 2020, you will have to convince millions of Americans that a vote for you is not a vote for Donald Trump. Why is this the time, with considerable risk of contributing to his re-election, to try something new? Thank you, Alex. Uh, Let's go
3: back to the question I asked earlier just to make sure we reset. I asked the audience, does anyone in the entire audience think that things are going well and the U.S. government is representing this audience and the American people well, and there wasn't one hand that goes up? I think that is primary evidence that the majority of Americans who are not on the extreme left and the extreme right feel as if they are not being represented and that we are losing something. We all know something's not quite right. And so when I look at the situation, I have a strong belief that it's time to disrupt the two-party system that is broken, that is based on revenge politics. And now people have asked me, how could you win? and I think this is a very important point, I know probably want to get to the next question, is that in the last almost 30 years, every presidential election basically came down to eight to 10 battleground states. But can you imagine a situation, if I run for president, we will be on the ballot of every state, and then the majority of every state, almost 50 states, a couple of them will not be in play, but let's say 45. For the first time in over 30 years, everyone's vote will matter. So, if you're a Democrat in a red state, your vote doesn't matter because it's predetermined and vice versa. But in a three, three person race in almost 50 states for the first time in over 30 years, American people have a voice and their vote really counts. And I'm, I'm here not saying I'm against the Democratic Party. I'm here saying I no longer recognize how far left they've gone. I just don't see myself in the party. And I believe that the majority of Americans feel like I do. The far right and the far left does not represent them, and they're looking for a home.
1: There's so much to say about that. So first of all, I'm now officially calling on John Kasich to jump in the race as an independent. Why am I doing that? The answer is very simple. He is going to jack maybe 2% of the vote From the Democratic candidate And he will pull more from the Democratic side Um, Basically Elitist Democrats In Washington D.C. and New York And some places in California They would pick a guy like Howard Schultz Over the inevitable lefty Who's going to win the primary on the Democratic side Whether it be Elizabeth Warren Or Bernie Sanders or whoever So even though Howard Schultz Is an absolute joke um, He is going to chip away at like 2%, and he's going to pull entirely from the Democratic pool. So we need to have the same kind of force on the right then. So John Kasich needs to jump in and take his 2% and chip away his 2% from from the right-wing side, which he will do. He will do that if John Kasich runs. So it, it would be a civic duty of John Kasich to run, but I don't think he would run because I think John Kasich is the kind of person who would look at Howard Schultz and go, I actually like kind of like Howard Schultz. And I agree with Howard Schultz, and I would vote for Howard Schultz. So it's not like Ross Perot. When Ross Perot ran, he actually took evenly from the Republican pool and the Democratic pool. And even though he got like somewhere between 16% and 19% of the vote, he got zero electoral votes. Um, And he took evenly from both sides, so he didn't really serve as a spoiler. Now, by the same token, when it came to Ralph Nader and when it came to Jill Stein... They didn't act as election spoilers simply because of the numbers. They didn't get enough votes to actually spoil it. And then on top of that, you still had like 9% of Democrats voted for Donald Trump. So it's kind of crazy to blame somebody who got like less than 1% of the vote and say, she's the reason Donald Trump won when 9% of Democrats voted for Donald Trump and Donald Trump chipped away at the Rust Belt. And even if you gave all of Jill Stein's votes to Hillary Clinton in the Rust Belt, Trump still would have won. So, First of all, the, the answer is um, ranked-choice voting. Everybody should be screaming about ranked-choice voting, and this is an issue now where centrist-type Democrats and lefties can get together and agree and say, hey, listen, man, you hate Howard Schultz, I hate Howard Schultz. We all hate Howard Schultz. That's why I've been dunking on him on Twitter for the past, since he fucking floated the idea that he might run, and he's been ratioed every time he tweeted. There's a solution here. The solution is ranked-choice voting because then even the theoretical idea of somebody being a spoiler – It wouldn't happen. It's not going to happen, because then you get to rank it. Hey, my number one choice is uh, Bernie Sanders, then my number two, uh, you know, maybe whoever the Green Party candidate is, then my number three, whoever the Libertarian Party candidate is, then my number four, Howard Schitts, then my number five, Donald Trump. So when you have ranked choice voting, oh, my first one doesn't have enough, it defaults to my second. So that's the answer, and everybody should be pushing for that. But here's the thing, again, about Howard Schultz that drives me fucking crazy is that he portrays himself as this outsider. Like, oh, you have this two-party system. Two-party system's fucked up, right? That's why, hey, I'm the answer. He says, does anybody think the system's representing them? You guys all said, no, that's why I'm running. But, Howard, you don't represent them either. You don't represent them at all. Your whole campaign to this point has been based on what you're against, and the shit you're against is the shit that the polls show the American people are for. 70% of Americans want Medicare for all. Every fucking speech you've given and every interview you've given since you said you were going to run was you saying we can't do Medicare for all. So as he he portrays himself as a solution, as he's a part of the cause of the problem. Dude, the only reason you're being taken seriously is because you're a fucking billionaire and you're buying yourself legitimacy. That's the problem. The problem is money in politics. And you're fucking part of that problem. So stop Selling yourself as the solution. And again, I can't stand the false equivalence of like, well, you know, far right's crazy, far left is crazy. Here you got the far right, fucking pushing for policies that are overwhelmingly unpopular that everybody hates, and here you got the far left pushing for populars that are uh, pushing for policies that are overwhelmingly popular. They're equally bad, and I'm in the middle, so vote for me. I'm here to disrupt the two-party system. You do know an independent has never won, right? You could say George Washington was part of no party. Of course, he was our first president. But outside of George Washington, an independent has never won. The closest anybody ever got, um, even as a third party, was uh, Teddy Roosevelt when he ran the first time around and got 27% of the vote. But then he had to run as one of the two major parties in order, in order to win. Listen, we had this debate not that long ago. where I was talking to people on the left and basically explaining to them that, no, no, you're not getting the, the systemic issue here. It is simply not possible for an independent to win. It is simply not possible for a third party to win in this country. I wish that wasn't the case. I wish we did have a, a system where we have like six different viable parties. But we don't have that system. We would need, we would need, in order for an independent or a third party to win, you need proportional representation. You need a parliamentary system you would like to have ranked choice voting, those are the policies that would that would open up our system and change our system. But every president we've had, outside of uh, our first president who was in no party, George Washington, every president we've had has been part of one of the two major parties at the time. Now, there, there's been changes in that front. So like, for example, there was a time when we had the Whig Party. There was a time when we had the Democratic-Republican Party, Federalist Party. So We've had different parties, but at every step in U.S. history, it was either no parties, Washington, or it was a two-party system. So you're not going to, he's not going to win as an independent. So ultimately, this is a vanity project, but he does, apparently he doesn't know. Like, he genuinely seems to think he's going to win. You're not going to win, dipshit. You're not going to win. You're not going to come close to winning. But you will jack 2% from the Democratic side for the high-income Starbucks Democrats, literally in this case, the high-income Democrats. The people in D.C., the people in uh, New York City, the people, some places in California, you will jack 2% who say, I can't vote for an evil socialist like Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders. And dude, that's what he, he, will, that's what he would be known for from the, here on out. And, okay, I'll say it one more time. Please, John Kasich, run as an independent in 2020 if Howard Schultz runs in 2020. You have to do it. But I don't think he will because I think that I think John Kasich would rather see Trump get reelected than Bernie Sanders get elected or Elizabeth Warren get elected. So the establishment is basically trying to stop at nothing. To make sure we don't get a populist left social Democrat. All right, Kamala Harris. So Kamala Harris went on The Breakfast Club, which I love, by the way, um, and she spoke about her position on legal marijuana. Now, you're going to see here not just what she said um, about her position, but what happened four years ago or five years ago in 2014 when she spoke about the issue of legal marijuana back then. So... Listen, I don't want to spoil a clip for you or anything, but she lies. She lies to the Breakfast Club in a way that's really gross. I don't know why she did it. She didn't have to do it. She could have said, I evolved, yada yada. She didn't. She just lied. So I'm going to show you that, um, and then I'm going to tell you a little bit more about what happened in her appearance. Watch.
2: They say you oppose legalizing weed.
1: That's not true. I know.
2: <laughs> and, and, and look, I joke about it, have joking. I have my family's from Jamaica. Are you kidding me? Right. No, no, I do not. No, no, no. Um, I have had concerns. When did the full record, I have had concerns, which I think must we, First of all, let me just make the statement very clear. I believe we need to legalize marijuana. <laughs> Now, that being said, and not, this is not a, a but, it is an and, and we need to research, which is one of the reasons we need to legalize it, we need to move it on the schedule so that we can um, research the impact of weed on, based on a developing brain. Mm-hmm. You know, that part of the brain that develops judgment actually begins its growth in, at age 18 through age 24. The frontal cortex, I think. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. That's right. So we, we've got to take that seriously. And so I believe that we need to research that because I, I, I believe we don't fully know the consequences. Um, the other issue that, that, that we've got to address is is how we're going to measure impairment when somebody has been smoking weed in terms of driving.
5: Your opponent, okay. Ron Golda, said that he is for the legalization of marijuana recreationally. Your thoughts on that?
2: Um, I, that he's entitled to his opinion.
1: <laughs> she fucking laughed at it. Now, I need everybody to understand something. If Kamala Harris had said in that interview, I used to oppose legalizing marijuana. In fact, I was a strong opponent of it. But then, because I read this, this, and this, and I spoke to this person and that person, I've evolved on the issue. And I know some people would call it a flip-flop. You can call it whatever you want to call it. The fact of the matter is, today, I'm a sincere believer that we need to uh, legalize, tax it, and regulate it. And I will 100% fight for that policy, and if I don't, you guys hold me accountable. If she said, if she was honest and she said, yeah, I used to be against it, now I'm for it. I, I swear I would not be doing this segment. There's no way I would be doing this segment if she was just honest. But she wasn't honest. She lied. And now that undercuts her credibility. And now I think that if she's president, is she going to legalize marijuana? I don't think so. I don't think so. Because if you were actually going to do it, then why wouldn't you just be upfront in that interview and say, listen, there's a video out there of me and people have seen it. I laugh when I'm told that my Republican opponent wants to legalize marijuana. And I was against legalizing marijuana. But here's why I changed on the issue, and here's why you can trust me now. Like, if she were to just be open and upfront about it, then I honestly would not be doing this segment. And if anything, I'd give her credit. But she didn't. She made it seem like she was never against it. When we have her on video laughing at the idea of legalizing it. So that really undermines her credibility. I don't know why she'd do that. I mean, I guess she's relying on the fact that the media is not going to call her out on that. And honestly, the Breakfast Club usually does... Great stuff, but this was a little terrible, and their audience knows it. I read the comments on from their audience, and they were like, "No, we don't like Kamala, and here's why we don't like Kamala," and they have specific policy reasons. And also, the like to dislike on their interview of her was not good, more than 50% dislikes, and they earned it. I mean, you gotta you gotta hold her accountable. Um, Now, you're probably thinking, "Well, why the fuck is there a picture?" Of Snoop Dogg, Tupac, and uh, Kamala Harris over your shoulder, Kyle. Well, the answer is later on in that interview. She was at. They asked her like, "Have you ever smoked weed?" And she was like, "Yeah." And then she explains like, yeah, "Okay, I was listening to Tupac and Snoop, and I was smoking." Now, some people are saying <clears throat> that she said like, "I smoked in high school or I smoked in college, or whatever it was, school. I don't remember which one." Um, and that's when I listened to Tupac and Snoop and I smoked. To be fair to her, I watched the entire interview. I don't know if she heard the part where they said, what did you smoke? What did you smoke to? What music did you smoke to when you were in school? I think she was just saying, when I smoked, I listened to Tupac and Snoop Dogg. I don't think she was trying to say when I was in school because people did some research and they found out she was in school in 1986. They didn't until the 1990s, Tupac and Snoop weren't out. So you can't have listened to Tupac and Snoop in 1986 when they weren't out until the 1990s. So in other words, people were saying that's another clear brazen lie. You were trying to say you listened to them in school when you smoked, but they weren't even out yet when you were in school. But again, to be fair to her, I watched the whole interview and what it sounded like to me was she wasn't saying when I was in school, I listened to Tupac and Snoop and I smoked. She was just saying that when I smoked, I listened to Tupac and Snoop. But then the only other option is she smoked for a long time. Okay, so she was smoking weed back in high school back, or back in school. I don't know whether it was high school or college. But then all the way through the 1990s, so for a five-year period or more. Now, I have no problem with that. If anything, that makes you more likable, and that makes me think, like, okay, you have the perspective of, somebody, of a regular person and not somebody who's in their ivory tower looking down at everybody. But those are the only two options. Either you lied about, oh, when I was in school, I was smoking and listening to Snoop and Tupac. Either that's another total lie, which I don't put past you because you lied elsewhere in this interview. Either it's a lie or you weren't lying and you were just saying, I smoked and listened to Tupac and Snoop, but it was like years later, which means you were smoking for a while. So it's one or the other. Either you were a long-term weed smoker or you lied and said you listened in school and you – didn't listen to them because they weren't even out yet. but Kamala Harris man, listen, one of the lefties has to win. Oh don't do it. She's honestly she reminds me of Hillary quite a bit, Kamala Harris now. I don't think she's as bad. I think she's a little bit better, okay? And she's a little bit more savvy as a politician. but ultimately I think she's very similar to Hillary. I do, I do. And the time it's not it's not time for a corporate centrist. It's just not. It's time for a populist left social Democrat. That's what we need. So there's a couple of the candidates who I, I'd, I'd be happy if we got any of a number of candidates, but can't say I'd be too excited if we get Kamala or Kirsten or Cory Booker or uh, Julian Castro or Pete Booty Gig. You guys got to check out who Booty Gig is. Nobody knows who he is. Or Amy Cloudboot Jar, or Howard Schitts. Or um, any of the other like centristy candidate. Now the breakfast cereal is thinking of running. I forgot to tell you guys, the breakfast cereal is like in New Hampshire shaking hands. That's Hickenlooper. He's a breakfast cereal. You wake up to a bowl of Hickenloopers, which is disgusting. But anyway, um, Kamala Harris lies for no goddamn reason. There you have it. <clears throat> So this next story is absolutely bananas. Take a look at this. So Ken Klippenstein says, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli Prime Minister, deleted uh, their tweet and replaced a war with Iran with combating Iran. <clears throat> Excuse me, my voice is fucked up. Um, hmm. That was not a plug for Seltzer, but I'm already the big Seltzer sellout, so who gives a shit even if it was? Um, <clears throat> now, I, re- I retweeted this when it first came out so I was like, holy shit, they're saying the quiet part loud again. So the original tweet said, what is important about this meeting, because uh, Netanyahu met with other heads of state in the Arab region, um, what is important about this meeting, and it's not, it is not in secret because there are many of those, is that this is an open meeting with representatives of leading Arab countries that are sitting down together with Israel in order to advance the common interest of war with Iran. See, this is what happens when you're in your ivory tower too long and you're only surrounded by other elites for too long. Um, you forget that there's this population of people out there who don't agree with you and they don't like you and they think you're a warmonger asshole and that you have to couch things and you have to soften the blow when you try to steer people in a certain policy direction. And he forgot that. And so he's like, yeah, kind of, we want war with Iran. Everybody agrees, right? Yeah, yeah. Let's, uh, let's do war with Iran. So this has to do for you know, sectarian reasons, um, this has to do with business reasons, and for the longest time Netanyahu has wanted to topple Iran. Now he's just saying it. He used to say it only behind closed doors, now he's just saying it. And then when they got the backlash over that, because everybody was like, whoa, what? Then he said, what is important about this meeting, and it is not in secret, because there are many of those, is that this is an open meeting with representatives of leading Arab countries that are sitting down together with Israel in order to advance the common interest of combating Iran. Listen, the reason I cover stories like this for you is I'm trying to let everybody know that the default perception that many of us have growing up in the U.S. is not true. And that default perception is we're the world leader and we generally mean well. And so when we do, like, interventions or whatever, there's a good reason for it. There's a good reason. We're never, like, the bad guy and the aggressor. It turns out oftentimes the U.S. is the bad guy and the aggressor. Oftentimes Israel is the bad guy and the aggressor. Oftentimes Saudi Arabia is the bad guy and the aggressor. It's not like this idea of, like, there's always a reason and there's always something that you'll, if you heard it, you'd be like, oh, that makes sense why we're doing X, Y. No. A lot of the times it's fucked up. It's for business reasons. It's for natural resources. It's for geopolitical power and control. It's for sectarian reasons in many instances. So just know that. Know who the warmongers really are. They're out there, and they're disastrous, and they have blood on their hands, and they're going to continue to fuck everything up. And so that's why we need a strong resistance to all these guys. You know, in the U.S., look, we have fucking Mike Pompeo and Elliot Abrams... And and John Bolton controlling foreign policy. It's as bad as it's ever been. Everybody should be totally aware of that. When you see what's happening like with Venezuela now, um, Syria, just understand what's really happening and who the problem is. All right, let me do one more, and then I'll take a final break. You guys are going to get a kick out of this one. This is very impressive, if I don't say so myself. So Katie Halper went on Fox News, and she absolutely lit up Laura Ingram and her right-wing guest on the issue of Ilhan Omar and the false claims of anti-Semitism against her. Take a look.
9: You yeah. say that uh, Omar's comments are both not anti-Semitic, and you you didn't have a problem, I imagine, with the first comments. No, I and mean I have a problem the apology with apology her fine. as an anti-Semite. She said something, this is how anti-Semitic it was, apparently. She said something that Thomas Friedman, major supporter of Israel, has said. Thomas Friedman said an applause that Bibi Netanyahu received was paid for by the Israel lobby. There's nothing anti-Semitic in there. What is anti-Semitic, though, if you want to talk about anti-Semitic tropes and playing into those, is what Kevin McCarthy, who along with Donald Trump is going after Omar, what he said in a tweet that he deleted, Soros and Bloomberg and Steyer were buying the election. Now, that is an anti-Semitic trope. That he definitely played okay. into. Well, he deleted the tweet. Okay, but he so never apologized. Schumer has said things that are very Islamophobic, friends, and no one asked him to apologize. There's this double standard. But so no pattern. You see no oh, pattern no, there is, among some of these newer Congresswomen who seem to Israel, equate money with anti-Semitism. Chuck Schumer no. said that that there's no peace in the Middle East with well, Palestinian Okay, so Torah. Katie.
3: Of course, we say it's our land. The Torah t- says it, but they don't believe in the Torah. So, that's the reason there is not peace. Which is
9: idiocracy.
3: The reason why there is a state of Israel is because the Jewish people were almost exterminated from the face of the globe. And they did not have a sanctuary place they could go to have their own state. There wasn't a state for Jews to be able to call their I own. Know, by, by the way, it's fair. The and, and, and it's fair land. We don't have to agree with absolutely every well, decision their no. government makes, but it is wrong to attack them as a people. Well, no one attacked them as a peaceful right yes, I We're just talking saw
9: that about tweet. AIPAC. I'm a Jew. I'm a person. No one attacked me because I don't support APAC. Millions of Jews this, don't support APAC, and that's why there are all these but alternatives. This is the problem. Because Listen Jews me. like me are really tired of having APAC, which is a very small but very powerful elite minority representation of Jews. It's very tiresome to have them claim to speak for all Jews, and conflate Jewish this identity with unquestioning support of Israel, which is the anti-Semitic yeah. in itself. This, let me just That's say the this for you. This and is a big right. dynamic. The nice of Donald Trump this, had actually this, condemned the people in Charlottesville. This, and you, and Matt, the you in this communication, If I could please just be honest, we're making it up. This is the dynamic. Let's say it. Let's say it. Okay, you got to answer i got to tell you. Guys, guys, stop. Stop.
1: Stop. That was incredible. Listen, They're not ready they're not ready. You know, we've been talking about this for a while. You guys are well aware of it. That's why when I went on Fox news, the two times I went on Fox news, um, the, the videos got insane, uh, views and everybody was talking about it because Fox news is used to having the punching bag lefties. Like I'll bring them on and then we'll fuck them up. (laughs) But then this new generation, we're not fucking around with you. Listen, we, we live this stuff. We eat, sleep, and breathe this stuff. We follow politics like we're junkies. I mean, I'm, I'm injecting politics in my arm like a heroin addict. So I, like, you're not gonna, you're not gonna corner me. You're not gonna find a way to make a point where I'm like, oh, your hacky talking point has now convinced me. No, I know what I'm talking about. They don't know what the fuck they're talking about. I'm gonna fuck them up. And that's exactly what happened with Katie Halper here. They can't, They have not a single solid argument against what she's saying, so they look like the fools that they are. And by the way, wait for it, I guarantee you all these right-wing commentators who love to say, oh, the left and their false cries of bigotry, when will they stop Uh, immediately going to personal attacks and calling people sexist, racist, misogynist, bigoted... When, when will they stop? Those same people are going to turn around and say uh, Katie Halper is an anti-Semite, and Katie Halper is a self-hating Jew. We just covered uh, Ben Shapiro's segment where he said that about Glenn Greenwald. Rolls off the tongue as if it's nothing. Like, just, yeah, Glenn Greenwald, uh, anti-Semite, rabid anti-Semite, uh, self-hating Jew. The same people who are like, how could you with false claims of bigotry, cannot wait to do false claims of bigotry for political hack purposes. So I think Katie Halper did an incredible job there. I don't think Fox News knows what they're getting with this new generation of lefties. We actually know what we're talking about. So the old generation of lefties, not really lefties, more liberals, who don't have a backbone and who don't know how to argue and make a point because they kind of half agree with the right, it's not those days anymore. It's not those days anymore. So we're coming with a, a fucking boatload of substance to dump all over your head. That's some weird-ass imagery, but nonetheless, I proceed. (laughs) Wonderful job there from Katie Halper. And that will be the first and last time she's on Fox News. All right. Final break. When we come back, Congressman Duncan Hunter made an ass of himself, um, and then David Packman laid out um, how to answer the question specifically when they say, how are you going to pay for it? And he did a wonderful job, if I don't say so myself. Stay right there. We'll be right back with that and more. Dog. Oh, Let's take a look at the weather real quick while we're live on air randomly. Unseasonably warm it's been. We had that brief cold snap, but it's 42 degrees in February in New York. That's a little bit weird. A little weird if I don't say so myself. Okay. You saw this fight happening between Joe Rogan and uh, Alex Jones. It's more Alex Jones coming after Joe Rogan. Yeah, it's getting ugly, man. Alex Jones is just like trying to dig up old clips of Joe Rogan to take him out of context and be like, fuck him, he's evil. He has some issues. Although everybody knows that Alex Jones has issues. That's not breaking news. <laughs> uh-huh. Oh, well, you know what everybody has to do? Um, everybody has to follow... Uh, Amy Cloudbootjar on Twitter, not Amy Klobuchar. Amy Cloudbootjar. Somebody made um, somebody made a parody account of Amy Klobuchar based off my nickname for her, Cloudbootjar, and uh, so now it's at Cloudbootjar. That's the Twitter handle, and um, tweeting hilarious shit. Like, uh, we must be for good things and against bad things. Hashtag CloudBootJar2020. <laughs> oh, what's the other one? There's a few that made me laugh. Um, there was one about we must throw binders at our staff or something. <laughs> oh, so follow CloudBootJar on Twitter, everybody. You'll get a good little chuckle out. I was laughing at it yesterday for quite a bit, and I retweeted, like, a thousand of the tweets from Cloud Jar. So props to whoever created that, because you're fucking hilarious. Um, All right, now let's go to uh, Duncan Hunter, and we'll show you what the GOP priorities really are, and this guy's the worst of the worst. So you guys might remember Congressman Duncan Hunter. Is this jackass right here. He, um... He's one of the most corrupt, if not the most corrupt politician in Washington, D.C. Now, that's a hard thing to get. But he's so bad, he didn't even realize, like, I have to mask this a little bit. I have to do it through official channels. I have to be able to say, no, this is a campaign contribution and not uh, just rank corruption. So bad, he was brought up on charges. So he's a joke. He's massively corrupt. There's not an honest bone in this man's body. Well, now, he went on Fox News to talk about, um, the military. And look at what he said. I have a lot to say about this. Watch.
5: Matt Golsina is under suspicion for premeditated murder. Eddie Gallagher is in jail in San Diego, a Navy SEAL uh, that is in trouble for killing bad guys the wrong way. What I think we have here is a case of what the U.S. government would call compassionate combat, m- meaning. The U.S. government for the last five years under President Bush and criminalized under President Obama has wanted us to kill the bad guys, but in the right way meaning they, they want us to kill guys compassionately and only under the rules of engagement that, that they say to. And if you kill the bad guys that we actually say are bad guys the wrong way, well, the U.S. government then is going to try you for murder and put you in jail, even if you're a decorated Green Beret, if you're a Navy SEAL, if you're uh, Marine Corps Force Recon. That's, that's where we've fallen here, and I think that's, that's the umbrella that all this falls under That's why Golson is in so much trouble. There's supposed to be a thing now, compassionate combat, which doesn't exist. Either you want us to kill the bad guys or you don't.
1: All right, so first let's state the obvious. You made that up. Nobody said that. You said that. Compassionate combat. That's something made up by the right, and then they act like it's something the left has been promoting, as if anybody, like, in the circles I run in, which is the left circles, has anybody ever said, I'm for compassionate combat? No, we're for ending the wars because we shouldn't be in illegal offensive wars. So they just make stuff up and just say, Yeah, I don't know, this is what the left believes in. They don't actually, but I said it, so just take my word for it. Oh, okay, we're on Fox News. That sounds good. So um, he's just making shit up. But notice there how he thinks like a child. He's like, Well, them bad guy, me good guy. I get to go after bad guy. Now the guy that he's defending, let me tell you about this uh, what happened with this guy um, some u s soldiers soldiers were attacked there was um it was uh, an IED that went off and they were this guy was convinced oh i know I know who uh, created the bombs, I know who did the bombing and the u s soldiers went to that guy um, and captured him, okay Then they brought him back to the base. now see this is where. Civilized people have a process. Okay, you captured a guy who might be guilty of some sort of a crime. There's a process in place. And worst case scenario, worst case scenario okay, we don't have all the, the pieces in order, all of our ducks in a row in order to go through this process at the moment. Keep them captive and, until we figure out when we can go through this process. Okay, Because once you capture somebody, they are now a prisoner understand? They're no longer an enemy combatant on the field where it would be totally justified if they attacked you to fire back, okay? So this guy was a prisoner, by the way. Was any evidence presented at all that he was actually the bomb maker? No. Which is why we have due process, just so everybody knows. The idea behind due process is the government does not always get it right. In fact, oftentimes they get it wrong. So you need to have due process. You need to have a system set up whereby you ascertain the guilt or innocence of the party that was charged. That's what innocent until proven guilty is. That's the foundation of modern enlightened society. Okay? So no evidence whatsoever, no evidence presented. This guy's convinced, oh, this is the man who, who did the bombs. Can I prove it? No, I'm not going to bother to try. It's, it's just a hunch I have. I think he's guilty. Uh, so what does he do? They take him as a prisoner, they drive him out to the desert, and they shoot him in the back of the head and kill him. This is who Duncan Hunter is defending. This is who Fox News is defending. By the way, Fox News covering this endlessly made it so Trump tweeted about it, and he said maybe we'll give him a pardon or or we'll commute his sentence. Now, apart from the obvious immorality of this, it's childish in the sense that they actually have that worldview, guys, the worldview of we good, they bad. Okay, but what if the they, people you're lumping in with the they, are not guilty? What about that? Are they still bad? Because they're nominally on the opposite side of you, even though they're not part of any op- opposing force? This is how they think. Me good, they bad. Like when Blackwater did the, uh, the massacre in the square in Iraq, and then were found guilty of war crimes. Are we still good in that instance? Are they good? Is that what that is? Well, what do you believe in compassionate combat or whatever the fuck he said? I believe in not massacring civilians <laughs> like as if that's like a cut like that's supposed to be controversial. Like, ooh, he's against murder. <laughs> like that's supposed to be duh. so I mean it, it's just so gross, and the final point is this: these are the same people who scream about law and order. Think about the irony of that. You can't have that both ways. Either you believe in law and order, in which case you're supposed to say, you have these laws, so here are these things that are not supposed to be violated. And then when they are violated, I am one of the types of people to stand up and say, no, we will not stand for this. We must have justice. When you say I'm a law and order person, that's what that means. But what they really mean is, I'm going to scream law and order. And what I mean is, against minorities. I mean it against um, people in other countries. I mean it against lefties. I don't mean it against us. And I certainly don't mean it against the U.S. government when, when they are offensively illegally invading countries. Rules for thee, not for me. So you got to follow them. I don't have to follow them. I'm going to scream about law and order as I violate international law all the time, violate the U.S. Constitution, violate the Magna Carta. So, but that doesn't count. Because when we do it, it doesn't count. That's how Duncan Andrews is. When I do it, it doesn't count. And you could begin to see why he did what he did with corruption, too. Who, me? No, I'm one of the good guys. I mean well. So when I do brazen corruption and spend campaign contributions on, like, my, buying my wife a car and shit, it doesn't count as bad because I mean well, and everybody knows I mean well, so I'm above it. So when I don't mean law and order because I violate law all the time. I'm in favor of our military violating the laws. I don't care about the laws. But I say I care about them. Because that makes me sound like one of the good guys, as I act like one of the bad guys, but it's okay, I'm above it, it doesn't apply to me. You're just a dumbass, Duncan, I need you to get that. You're just a dumbass, okay? You're a piece of shit, you're a dumbass, you shouldn't be in this position of power that you're in, and you're a murder apologist. Congratulations. All right, let's go to David Pakman. So David Packman laid out in great detail an answer to the question from conservatives, how will the left pay for all the free stuff they want? And this is really wonky, but I love it for that reason. <laughs> Look at all this detail.
8: to pay for all of that free stuff liberals want to give you. Here's examples, then we'll add them up. If we reverse the Bush tax cuts, we would raise $488 billion a year. If we reverse the Trump tax cuts, we would raise $164 billion a year. If we ended the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, we would raise $127 billion a year. Um, In terms of uh, ideas to pay specifically for Medicare for All, if we add a 7.5% employer payroll tax on companies, but we exempt the first $2 million in payroll. If you're a business with $100,000 in payroll, you're exempted. You pay nothing. The idea is to protect smaller businesses. We could raise 390. It, it says a million, but it's actually a billion. That, that's my mistake. Um, and that would, on average, actually save businesses $9,000 a year. Um, we could add a 4% taxpayer tax on income exempting the first $29,000 a year. That would raise $350 billion a year. It would net save families because, remember, families are already paying for premiums and co-pays and all of that. If we did a carbon tax of $73 per ton on businesses, we could raise $300 billion a year. A wealth tax, similar to what Elizabeth Warren has proposed, If you tax wealth above $50 million at 2% and wealth above a billion dollars at 3%, you would raise $275 billion per year. Some other ways to raise money. Um, If we increase top marginal tax rates, if you create a 40% rate between $250,000 and $500,000 a year and a 45% rate from half a million to $2 million a year, and then a, um, it's, I believe it's supposed to be 50% rate between 2 and $10 million a year, and then a 52% rate above $10 million a year. These are taxes on really high earners. You raise $180 billion. If we raise the Social Security payroll cap from currently it's around $128,000 to $250,000, you raise $120 billion per year. There are Wall Street speculation taxes, which we could put in place, half a percent on trades, a tenth of a percent on bonds, um, 0.005 percent on derivative trades. That would raise $55 billion per year. We could look at estate taxes. You could do a 45 percent tax on estates over $3.5 million, and then a 50 percent tax on estates over $10 million, 55% 55% estate tax when you get to $50 million estates, and if people are uh, uh, passing on estates bigger than a billion dollars, a 77% estate tax that would raise 31.5 billion dollars. We could end fossil fuel subsidies that would raise 26 billion dollars. There's an accounting measure called LIFO, which means last in first out. You don't have to understand what it is, but um, that would eliminating that would raise 11.2 billion. And if we raised the long-term capital gains rate from 15% to 20%, that would raise $5 billion. Now, you don't need nearly all of this stuff. This is the really important thing. I've given you, given you a list of a dozen or so ideas for how you can raise money. You might not like some of that stuff, so let's just pick and choose one configuration. So now let's compare what these programs would cost versus what we might save. Um, Medicare for all tuition-free public college, paid family, paternal, maternal leave, and the Social Security expansion. We're talking about 1432000000000 trillion. I'm only picking a few of those ideas I mentioned to you. What if we eliminated the Bush and Trump tax cuts, did the employer and household tax that I mentioned, exempting, of course, the first $2 million in payroll for businesses and the first $29,000 in income for families, and raise the Social Security cap to two hundred and fifty thousand. That would raise one point five trillion dollars.
1: Yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, now he he says it uh, a different part in the video that you didn't see there. That I'm not even getting into the fact of the matter that modern monetary theory has now taught us that the way we think of deficits is not the proper way to think of deficits, so therefore you don't even necessarily have to do these things that I'm about to lay out. But he says, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to take what the right set, buy into the rights logic and respond on their grounds. So in other words, I'm going to assume that they're correct when they say you have to pay for X, Y, and Z, and then I will respond using that logic and then breaking it down for you so that you have a solid answer, even if you accept their framing of it, okay? Which I I think is awesome and makes perfect sense. And he, he lays out clearly, hey, even if I accept your your concern trolling of who's gonna pay for it, not only do we have a way to pay for it, we have a way to pay for it and then some. And you don't even need to do all of these options that I'm laying out for you. And then you know I've spoken about this before. He kind of touched on it there. Um, you can do a mix of, of raising taxes on the rich, but also cutting spending in other areas. And like he said, this is how much we'd say if we end the Iraq War, if we end the Afghanistan War. So in many instances, it's not even like, uh, you know, new taxes. You're talking about basically reallocating funds. So I, I love this this whole topic of, like, schooling the deficit mongers is um, one of my favorite issues because they're just so transparent and how hacky they are. Like, they literally never talk about the deficit in regards to endless war, ever. They just increased the military budget by over hundred billion dollars. And nobody asked, not in mainstream media, not any of the politicians were like, hey, how are we gonna pay for this? It was just like, of course we're gonna pay. What do you mean, we're just gonna pay for it? So think about that, over a hundred billion dollars. Just added, if for this, the in, let me be clear, the increase in this year's military budget, that's not the whole budget. It's just the increase in this year's military budget. You don't know how much free college would cost? About $60 billion. You can pay for free college for everybody. And then some. Almost twice over with just the increase in the military budget. But notice, you only hear the concern trolls when it comes to college. But you don't hear about it when it comes to the military. You don't hear about it when it comes to Wall Street bailouts. So we're going to afford this. Nobody says that. They're just like, well, what do you mean? It's something we have to do, so we're going to do it. Nobody says that about we just have to do health care. What do you mean? We just have to do college. What do you mean? So it. Really, this issue has been used to try to stifle progress by bad faith actors. But I love that David took the time to give specifics to answer their question, because now you know there's a really clear and easy answer, and they absolutely have no rebuttal to it. Okay. Oh, wait, did I? What have I done, bitch? What have I done? Oh, I went to the wrong graphic. Alright, give me a second. Let me pull up the right graphic.
4: What have I done?
1: I got two more stories for you. One of them involves um, economic suicides, which is very sad. And the other one involves fake news, which is not sad. Sad. Wait for it. Wait for it. There it is. Okay. So there's a study that came out a couple of years back that uh, I saw Jordan Yule on Twitter uh, sent out, and I wanted to share this with you. There, there was a book written about this too, but this is Forbes reporting it. Take a look. A dramatic spike in suicides between 2008 and, 2014, and 2010, excuse me, can be linked to the economic crisis. According to a study published today in the British Journal of Psychiatry, this was uh, published back in 2014, actually, Uh, researchers from the University of Oxford compared suicide data uh, from before 2007 with the years of the crisis and found more than 10,000 economic suicides associated with the recession across the U.S., Canada, and Europe. There has been a substantial rise in suicides during the recession, considerably more than we would have expected based on previous trends, says lead author Aaron Reeves a postdoctoral researcher in the sociology department at Oxford University, and, says senior author David Stuckler, uh, also of Oxford, suicide are just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, these data reveal a looming mental health crisis in Europe and North America. Now, they go on to explain very clearly that they were able to link it to economics. Now they also say, um, obviously you're much more likely to commit suicide if you also have mental illness. You also have a you know, predisposition to depression. So it really it's a confluence of factors. Is confluence a word? If it's not, it should be because it fits in the sentence nicely. There's a confluence of factors, and but they were they did conclusively find it is tied to the economy. And they go on to say one of the main reasons we know this is the suicide rate was worst in was the worst in Greece, and it was best in Sweden and Scandinavia and they explain how you have, you know, the social safety net programs in, in the Scandinavian region, which really soften the blow of any economic downturns and make it so that people don't feel insanely desperate, whereas Greece is like the other end of the spectrum, where their economic downturn hit the hardest, um, and it was worse there, and so suicide shot up. Now, in the U.S., again, a lot of suicides from um, the economic crisis, and... I mean, listen, this is, this is an issue that nobody talks about, really, and it's, it's really important. Now, I want to plug something. I, I just watched it the other day. Andrew Yang running for president. He was on Joe Rogan's podcast, and it was a really great conversation. He laid out in detail um, his philosophy and why he thinks UBI, universal basic income, which he frames it as the freedom dividend. It's like you're a stockholder in America, and so you get a piece of the pie for being a stockholder in America. Um, he, he thinks that's part of the solution, and, and they had a really great conversation about the looming crisis of automation that we're actually in the middle of right now, that we're you know, constantly losing uh, the most common jobs that people have or now it's being automated. So that's a great conversation. Check that conversation out. But what you get is a sense of the way the transitioning economy really screws working people and how this needs to be addressed. And I thought that this study highlighted that in a way that no other fact could, that we have thousands of people who end up committing suicide, at least in part because of the economic downturn. So it shows you that poverty kills and bad economics kills. So when we come out here on this show and we argue for a living wage, a right to a union, an end to outsourcing uh medicare for all free college when we fight for these policies there's a lot that's riding on it i mean from one argument is just hey this is common sense this is logical look at all the other developed countries and they function better but th- there really is a strong moral argument that this prevents death and desperation among people and i mean this study should shake everybody to their core because here's the even worse news if it can get any worse there's another crash coming. It's just a matter of time. So that means economic suicides will spike even more. And right now, actually, because of um, how our economy is geared towards the rich and it screws over working people, you already do have – suicides are still at a high level, and uh, you also have drug abuse at a high level as well. And the, um, the average age of death is now coming down for white males. So there's a lot of fucking, I mean, icebergs straight ahead. If not, we've already hit it, and the Titanic is already beginning to sink. So these are serious problems that need to be addressed, and of course, we're not addressing them seriously. We need to have a strong social democratic movement in this country because, again, it's been proven in the numbers that social democracy saves lives. When you have an economic downturn, the social democracies that have strong safety nets lower suicide rate by far. So... There's a lot to be learned there. All right, final story of the day, bitch. All right, so this story got me irrationally angry. It's from Yahoo News. Bloomingdale's issued an apology on Monday for selling a shirt that read, Fake News, and it has since removed the item from its department stores. Bloomingdale's pulled the shirt from its stores after a reporter for New York City News station WPIX suggested to the retailer that the article of clothing delegitimizes journalists. Allison Caden was shopping at uh, Bloomingdale's store in White Plains, New York, on Sunday when she saw a mannequin wearing a shirt emblazoned with the words fake news. The phrase was made popular by President Trump, who used it to diminish reporting that he characterizes as false or sensational in nature. Hey, Bloomingdale's, Caden tweeted. This isn't funny or fashionable. It further delegitimizes hardworking journalists who bring real news to their communities. Okay. I am somebody who is part of this journalism community. Now, I don't fancy myself a journalist or a reporter. Some people do. I don't agree with them. I think I'm more of a political commentator. But as somebody who's part of the broader community, fuck off. (laughs) So... People don't really remember the chronology on this either. So it wasn't Donald Trump who first screamed fake news. It was not. It was actually Hillary Clinton and Democrats who said it about Trump and the Russian misinformation that was being spread on the Internet in order to get him elected. So it was Hillary and the Democrats who let the cat out of the bag, and then Trump, in typical Trump fashion, he just took it and ran with it. And he said it so often that everybody began to think, oh, he's the one who came up with it. But he didn't. It was actually... The opposition party so here's the point about this story that annoys the shit out of me we all know that if let's say trump never picked it up and never ran with fake news and it was just the democrats using it against uh the right this person never would have been outraged by it They would have been like oh yeah it's a shirt that says fake news and there's fake news that exists in the world what's the problem but because of political reasons because trump says that they don't like it they're like oh this is offensive i don't care about you being offended i don't give a shit So nobody is allowed to like that shirt or buy that shirt because you don't like it? It's so childish. Like, this is the kind of shit that gives people on the right ammunition where they get to turn around and go, look at these snowflakes on the left, and they are against microaggressions, and they want safe spaces. Stop feeding into that fucking caricature, that parody of a lefty. Because I got news for you, the overwhelming majority of lefties are not going to look at this shirt and say, how dare you, sir? They understand we live in a world where you're going to see things you disagree with. Like, are lefties trying to ban the Make America Great Again hat? No. Because it's called freedom. We live in a country where you can wear whatever the fuck you want. But now a fake news shirt people have to ban? Okay, let me ask this person. What do we call it when the media went along with the Bush administration and lied us into the Iraq war? And when the media called torture enhanced interrogation because the Bush administration wanted them to? What do we call it when the media said, "Okay, government, we agree we'll no longer show the coffins of our dead soldiers coming back from Iraq because that'll make people be against the war and we don't want that to happen. What do you call that? I know what I call it. I call it fake news. So I'm tired. Put the politics aside for a second and just be a person and understand there's going to be shit you disagree with and it's whatever. okay? and if you see something you disagree with, move the fuck on. You think I agree with everything I fucking see? Are you kidding me? I see shit all the time I despise. I despise most shit. (laughs) But I'm not like, I don't like it, you should pull it down from your shelves because I've reasons this, this, and this. How dare you, uh, you know, make, delegitimize hard-working journalists. You know who delegitimizes journalists oftentimes? Themselves. Every fucking anchor on CNN is a joke, and they're fucking terrible. I mean, so there's this other problem that's happened now where because Trump is so against the media... You've now had this reactionary response from some people on the left where they go, okay, I will now, by definition, defend the media. And the media didn't do anything wrong ever because Trump's against them, so I'm going to defend them full-throated. And that's dumb. You can have a nuanced perspective. What you can say is, and this is totally true, Trump only screams fake news for self-serving reasons. It's not like he actually looks at the accuracy of a, a report and says, this one I've determined is true. No. Anything that's against him, he calls fake. Anything that's for him, he says is not fake. So, yes, it's cynical the way he uses it. That's true. So he's a piece of shit. But it's also true that the media oftentimes blows. And you can say that. (coughs) Like, you're allowed to say that because it's true. So that's my spiel on this. Not only do I not dislike that shirt, I actually like it a lot. I would wear that shirt. But me wearing it would not be a sign of like, oh, my God, I agree with Trump. Me, me wearing that shirt would be like, I fucking hate the media because I do, because they're shitty. If they were doing their job, we'd already have Medicare for all. We'd already have free college. We'd already have a living wage. We'd already shame politicians into taking the right position on various issues. But the media sucks, and they're complicit with power. And that's part of the problem. So, yeah, there's a lot of fake news. They get us into wars. They're responsible for a lot of evil in this world. So accept that. You can have that position and also have the position that Trump sucks. Both of those are possible. All right. We're done, Zill. I love you guys. We'll talk to you soon. Everybody have a happy Valentine's Day and the rest of your day. Much love. I'm out. Peace.